My life is really um, complex. There are things about me that you wouldn't understand. Introduce me as Joker. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Welcome to Now Playing's Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics Movie Series. Ah, uh, gives a fella a good feeling to know they're up there doing their job. With our all-star hosts, Jacob the Dark Knight. Is it just me, or is it getting crazier out there? Stuart, the boy reviewer. For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed, but I do. And the clown prince of podcasting, Arnie. I used to think my life was a tragedy. It's a comedy. Each week at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we'll be watching another Batman film. Now, the real Have you ever danced with a spoiler in the pale moonlight? This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. What do you suppose something like this does to a kid? Listener discretion is advised. Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. <sighs> monkey work. And here we go. Today, we're discussing Joker, starring Joaquin Phoenix, directed by Todd Phillips. This is Arnie, and when I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a podcaster, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. And Stuart? And this is the host who always has negative thoughts, Jacob. Joker, a movie that I could not believe had the hype around it that it did. I can't recall the last time... A superhero film has been so polarizing. I mean, people worried about shootings in theaters, people saying Joaquin deserves an Oscar. Yeah, it was all over the place. Coming out of Toronto, this is going to be the film of the year. It's going to get all the Oscars. And then Todd Phillips, the director, opens his mouth and got a lot of backlash for what he thought where comedy was these days. Yeah, all over the place with this film. That said, I got to say, this one took me by surprise. I assumed that DC was in freefall. I mean, we have all commented on how their output has been inconsistent. Can we all agree? (laughs) At best, (laughs) putting it nicely. (laughs) Right. That they have not had the seamlessness that the Marvel Universe has been able to bestow on all of their works. When I heard they were doing a one-off Joker movie, I was like, eh, that sounds like a bad idea. Stuart, are you getting those Marvel paychecks saying they're in free fall? I mean, Wonder Woman made, what, a billion dollars? Aquaman made a billion dollars? What kind of free fall is that, will somebody say? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, uh, well, I don't care what the hardcore people think. The truth of the matter is, 
a lot of their movies have stunk and they're not consistent. The fact that we have a one-off Joker movie, this is a Joker that we're told will never appear with Batman, what the hell are they doing? Marvel would never do that, is what I guess I would say. Sure, but I don't mind that. Like, what is the best Spider-Man film? Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse? Like, that has no connection to the MCU or what Sony is doing with Tom Holland's Spider-Man or Venom, any of that. So I don't mind a one-off. If DC can just pull off a good movie, I don't care if it's in any kind of continuity. Yeah, but villain standalone movies, making a superhero movie without a superhero has not been something I thought has worked before. I mean, Halle Berry's Catwoman, Tom Hardy's Venom, (laughs) they could never figure out how to do Sinister of Six. I mean, you could even probably throw the Star Wars prequels into that concept. Having the supervillain story told without a counterpoint of heroism, where's our entry point? Who are we supposed to be with? And what are they going to accomplish? Yeah, but you mentioned Marvel. I think that DC here is taking a cue from Marvel's newest acquisition, Fox. Todd Phillips talked about how it took a lot of convincing at Warner Brothers to let him do an R-rated Joker movie, but that was the only thing he was pitching, and he's literally hearing responses from Warner Brothers like, we sell Joker pajamas at Target, what are you going to do to our character that might hurt pajama sales? And yet, you look at the road that Deadpool paved, and I think even more specifically Logan going more dramatic and being R-rated, you can't beat Marvel by playing Marvel's game the way you beat Marvel is by making your own. Fox did that. And nobody has even seen New Mutants because nobody knows what to do with it. Again, the X-Men horror movie. Yeah, they've experimented. Sometimes those experiments have been successful. I'm just saying, approaching this project, hearing that they were going to do a one-off film about the origin of Joker seemed like a waste of time. I was not excited about this movie at all until I saw the trailer. Yeah, I'll admit, I mean, after seeing what happened to Jared Leto in Joker's role in Suicide Squad... Was he in that movie? (laughs) He doesn't think he was in that movie enough. He's got a scene. (laughs) I was not overly excited to see what they would do with Joker. Now, what I will say is somewhere at this very moment, Jared Leto is pissed. (laughs) Yeah, when did Joaquin Phoenix get attached to this? Because that's when I would have gotten excited. You know, he's one of those actors, like a Tom Hardy, who's like a Nicolas Cage, who's just going to make some decisions and go with them. They could be bizarre. They could be captivating. Like, you know, that trailer, yeah, they really tapped into Martin Scorsese and that taxi driver feel. But I was even more excited about Joaquin Phoenix playing this role. And it should be pointed out, he is the man that would be Doctor Strange. He has courted comic book movies before and walked away saying, eh, This is not really for me. So why do this one? He was also offered the role of Bruce Banner. The reason he didn't do them, he didn't want to sign multi-picture contracts. He didn't want to do what Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. did, where the next seven years of your life, you're working basically as a day player for Marvel. Here... It's a one-picture deal. And the way they got him on board for this one, it was Todd Phillips again. Joaquin was connected from the very beginning, and the pitch Phillips gave him is, 
we're going to make a real movie, but we're going to get Warner Brothers to give us $50 million for it by calling it fucking Joker. Yeah, how did Todd Phillips end up doing this? Because I've seen a lot of his films, Old School, The Hangover Trilogy. Like, these are not things that uh, I associate with a, a gritty New York Scorsese-style film. You say that, and yet, when I looked at his filmography, I hadn't seen most of what he made. Yeah, they're bad comedies. <laughs> well, he makes kind of comedy I don't patronize. The, I'm not ever interested in watching Starsky and Hutch. That's just not something I'm going to see. I did see War Dogs, which I actually thought was a little underrated. I thought it was pretty good. It's okay, yeah. Kind of fell apart at the end. Yeah, I thought it was decent as well. And it was War Dogs that actually got this happening, as he was at an early screening of War Dogs with Warner Brothers and realized his exact phrase was War Dogs wasn't going to set the world on fire. And so he started talking to Warner about what could we make that's going to really get attention and do a little bit more, be a little more provocative. Look way down on his resume. His first film, and you might actually see why he really got the gig. I was shocked. I didn't realize. I had always heard about this documentary about the punk icon singer Gigi Allen. Yeah, I did not know Todd Phillips did that. I have seen it. Gigi Allen, ooh, those are some live performances you want to be careful with. He strips down, throws his feces, tough stuff to watch. Yeah, I watched the movie. I was like, oh, I've always wanted to see it. This gives me an excellent reason. It may be the closest of all his films to Joker. It begins with an actual endorsement from John Wayne Gacy, another killer clown. So yeah, it's brutal. I don't know that I'm telling people I recommend that experience. Be prepared. I don't say this lightly. It is very punishing. It is very hard sit. It's provocative in ways a lot of people probably won't appreciate. But you can see a director who's very much trying to confront a freak entertainer. And I do think at a core, Gigi Allen and Joker are two sides of the same coin. So I would be interested to see a guy that came from punk rock bring a punk rock aesthetic to a Joker movie if we must watch a Joker origin story. I want to say, though, I'm hesitant because, I mean, I always liked the way Keith Ledger played it. How did I get my scars? There's a danger in telling us definitively how Joker came to exist, right? There's something about the mystery we want to leave. I've always liked the mystery. The funny thing, and you could go back to Books and Nachos where Arnie and I talk about The Killing Joke, written by Alan Moore. The Joker says, I always change my story, but here's the version I'm going to tell of my origin. And they tell an origin story. And then DC's like, yeah, that's just his origin story. We're just going to make that the real thing. But yeah, I've always preferred him to be like Batman. We are so obsessed with his origin, that Martha and Thomas Wayne getting killed and the pearls and walking out of Zora, all of that, that has been told so many times in Joker being the opposite of Batman, I like that. Yeah, he's just this mysterious, chaotic clown figure that comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I definitely was thinking the killing joke when watching this and how it took elements of that. You know, in that comic book, Joker was a failed stand-up comedian who was kind of down on his luck in a run-down older Gotham City. But I came in thinking we might be seeing virtually an adaptation of the killing joke, minus all the Batman stuff. No, they definitely go in a different direction with this, but it gave them a good starting point. And Joker said he likes his origin story to be multiple choice. DC is having it both ways. They're going to make their continuity multiple choice. Which movies do you want in continuity? Go ahead. That's weird for me, that we're seeing something that I should not think of as a comic book movie. It's essentially what they're telling me. Don't worry, this will have nothing to do with Shazam, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and all of that. 
I mean, did they even have that DC logo? They have that old school Warner Brothers logo show up. No DC logo. Okay. And yet, I mean, it's not just your average comic book movie. This movie is doing bigger than a lot of films. I mean, it's opening bigger than your average Thor film. It's maybe not top tier. It's not Spider-Man. But I'm shocked, really. It's no Ant-Man, though. It's beating Ant-Man, right? Yeah. This is going to have a 90 million opening in the U.S. The biggest October release of all time. Is it Halloween? Are we just in the mood for something kind of scary after it? We want another killer clown? But it's shocking to me, the box office for what essentially feels a little art film is so huge. And that it's rated R. You can't get teenagers in, which is where Marvel makes its money, is they are aiming specifically at like the 13 to 17 year old market with their PG-13 films. And yes, adults can like it and younger kids can like it, but they're keeping that content. For a rated R film in an era where in my experience, it's much harder for young people to get into a rated R film that it made this much money is shocking to me. I expected it to do well. I didn't expect it to break Venom's record. Yeah, I'll say it helps that it's the Joker, that it's related to Batman, that Joker is one of the biggest comic book villains out there. If this was a Mr. Freeze story or a Captain Boomerang origin (laughs) story, like, no one would care. I mean, you could have the same aesthetic, that same Scorsese vibe, all that, no one would care. It being the Joker is a huge draw for people. Yeah, Martin Scorsese movies don't make this kind of money, so why is everyone (laughs) lining up for a Martin Scorsese universe superhero, supervillain? It's all curious. I didn't come to this movie with a lot of expectation of like, oh, I'm going to love it. I had a lot of curiosity. How are they going to pull this off was on my mind when I went to the IMAX Thursday night. So a very early showing. I didn't know you could see a movie at four o'clock in the afternoon first showing, but that was the first showing of Joker. There was not a lot of people, no kids, not a lot of police either. I'm hearing all this hype about how people are worried about shootings and I've heard none of that even now. We ended up going, we went to a show on Friday it was packed theater, but yeah, there were no cops there, like, hanging out. There were cops at certain theaters here in New York, where I am right now. I'm in Gotham City itself, recording this podcast for Gotham City Comic Con, I guess I'll call it. <laughs> and I know that in LA and New York and in places in Texas, there were cops there. We had a now-playing listener meetup where about a dozen of us met up at a gin bar right before the movie, had chatted for a bit, and then went over to a non-chain cinema in the village where I watched this in 70 millimeter. I actually saw it on film. And I gotta say, this was a great film to see in 70 millimeter with the cigarette burns (laughs) and everything that comes with film. It still had cigarette burns. That's amazing. Not to mention you're in a Manhattan theater, which, yeah, that's that's very cool. Yeah, was it an adult theater, Artie? It was not an adult theater, but it felt like an old playhouse because we were in the mezzanine and there were balconies and it was really luxurious. It looked so much like the theater in this movie where they are watching a Charlie Chaplin film that I started looking around for an active shooter at that moment. Like the guy would come to the theater that looks like the theater in the movie to shoot people. But no, thank God nobody has done this. I know that one of the reasons Todd Phillips has gotten really angry is because what he calls the far left are saying this is going to incite violence among what they call the incels and that this is an incel fantasy. And so the media did get me a little bit worried, but nothing happened except a great time with some now playing listeners, one of whom a six foot two guy came in Harley Quinn cosplay. It was awesome. (laughs) Thank you, everyone who came out. It was a great time. 
watching the movie and then standing around talking about it a little bit after. But going in, I know when the reviews started coming out, I got excited, but I was nervous because back when Deadpool 2 came out, Zazie Beetz was talking about the filming of this and everything, and she's like, oh, we're rewriting the film while it happens. We rewrote the whole thing while shooting. We'd go into Todd's trailer and write the scene for the night and then just go and shoot it. I'm like, that's not usually a good way for a film to go. Usually if you're rewriting next day's scenes the night before, you end up with a Lethal Weapon 4. Well, it's not usually how a Hollywood production goes. There is a long history of indie films. I mean, the French New Wave prided themselves on shooting during the day and then the director would go and write the next scene that night. I mean, there can be something to spontaneity, but it's usually a creative freedom you don't see exercised. And what, again, is a major property in the Warner Brothers, DC canon. I couldn't imagine that they were going to be as experimental and as free portraying this character in the way that they do. But I suppose in order to talk about that, we need a plot. Arnie, how about it? The year is 1981, and Joaquin Phoenix is Arthur Fleck, a middle-aged man who lives in a rundown Gotham City apartment with his elderly mother, Penny. Penny is a former Wayne Enterprises employee who writes letters daily to its rich owner, Thomas Wayne, asking him to help her and her son. When this movie begins, Arthur had already had mental problems with references made to a previous stay in Arkham Hospital. Now he has regular meetings with an indifferent social worker who makes sure his medications get refilled, but is mostly useless. Arthur is depressed and has uncontrollable fits of laughter when nervous or sad which is quite often as Gotham City is a horrible cesspool of crime and poverty. After being attacked on the job, Arthur's co-worker Randall gives him a gun for protection. But Arthur's boss doesn't like him much, and when the gun falls out of Arthur's suit while entertaining at a children's hospital, Arthur is fired. On the train ride home, Arthur is attacked by three drunk businessmen, but Arthur uses the gun to defend himself, killing two instantly. The third man runs away, but Arthur chases him down and unloads the pistol into the man's back. These murders become a new sensation as it's seen as an uprising against the rich. Thomas Wayne sees this strife as a launching point for his run for mayor of Gotham. He calls the protesters of the city clowns, so the citizens start protesting in clown masks and makeup. The police begin interviewing all the working clowns in Gotham about the murders, including Arthur. Things take a turn for Arthur when the city cuts funding for its social services program, leaving him without his medication. He begins to conflate reality with fantasy, believing himself to have a love affair with the single mother who lives down the hall, played by Zazie Beetz. More, he discovers his mother has been writing to Thomas Wayne because Wayne is Arthur's real father. Arthur goes to confront his dad, only to find out his mother was mentally unstable. Arthur was actually adopted, and as a baby, he was badly abused by Penny's boyfriend. When Penny has a stroke, Arthur suffocates his lying mother with a pillow. Arthur also begins to indulge his fantasy of stand-up comedy, but when on an open mic night he tries to tell his jokes, he is overcome with uncontrollable laughter and can barely get the lines out. A video of the performance is played on the late-night talk show hosted by Murray Franklin, played by Robert De Niro. It gets such a response, Murray's staff reach out to Arthur to have him come on the show, and Arthur fantasizes about killing himself on live television. The day of the show, Randall stops by Arthur's apartment due to the police investigations, and Arthur brutally murders the man, but lets Gary, another clown who came with Randall, leave unharmed. Arthur dresses in full clown regalia for his appearance on Murray's show, but when he comes out to talk to the talk show host, he doesn't kill himself. Instead, he confesses to the murders. He becomes agitated thinking about how Murray mocked his stand-up performance, so Arthur shoots Murray in the head on live television. 
This act begins a riot in the city, with the citizens in clown makeup raging against the city's authorities and rich. One man in a mask follows Thomas Wayne down an alley, shooting Thomas and his wife Martha, but leaving Wayne's son Bruce unharmed. Arthur is arrested, but some of the protesters ram the police car with an ambulance, freeing Arthur. Arthur stands on the hood of the police car, being cheered by all the disenfranchised clowns around him. But in the denouement, we find Arthur was captured and found insane, incarcerated in Arkham Hospital, and it's implied he's killed his therapist as credits roll. And as we get into this movie, before we talk about anything connected to comic books, DC, Joker, I've got to bring up the largest presence on screen. Martin Scorsese is all over this film. Which is ironic, because Martin Scorsese has been very vocal that he would never... He just came out against Marvel Universe, yeah. Yeah, he would never watch a comic book movie, never would make a comic book movie, didn't read comics growing up, is not attracted in any way to the art form. But Todd Phillips feels that Joker's world is set in the late 70s, early 80s of the Martin Scorsese movies, specifically Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and King of Comedy. I kind of guessed it was going to be a period piece from the trailers. After seeing it, I don't know why it's a period piece, except maybe Todd Phillips just really likes Martin Scorsese. One of my criticisms for this film is it feels very derivative of Scorsese, of those films you mentioned, Stuart, and it's just like, this director liked that stuff, so let's go for that aesthetic. I don't know if there's anything deeper than that. Again, Phillips wanted to make what he called a real movie and call it Joker, And I think the real movie he wanted to make was a Scorsese film. I think that's why it's set when it is. But also, if you look at, again, The Killing Joke came out, what, in the 80s? And it took place 30 years earlier, maybe even 40 years earlier. And so here, much like the recent It movies updated the kids from being in the 60s and 50s to being in the 80s and updated the 80s stuff to modern times, here... It's also keeping that distance. It's a weird, perfect marriage of comic accuracy, modern times, and the total vibe that it seems Phillips is going for here. If Scorsese doesn't like comic book movies, if he ever decided to make one, I think it would be Joker. Yeah, I've always wanted to see it. I must confess, part of me is just in love with the way Martin Scorsese shoots films, so I'm perfectly fine with it. I do think that there might be something else going on, though. Yeah, you can call Phillips reductive. He will take literally scene shots, moments. We start at a makeup mirror that I can't help thinking this is the beginning and end of Raging Bull, and this will play out throughout the movie. I can point to probably a dozen or more moments that feel photocopied from Scorsese's universe, there's another factor. Part of the reason why those movies are so compelling is that was a time when New York City was in great despair. I mean, they shot Taxi Driver when there was a garbage strike, and there'll be a garbage strike in this movie, and there's just piles of trash over everything. We believe that New York City, the Big Apple, was rotten to the core, and that it was irredeemable, really. It was a land of criminals. The associations this movie is going to make to modern day, it is asking us to think, even though it may look like Manhattan has gotten a facelift, things are as dark or maybe even darker than they were 
at the time of the Scorsese universe. In 1978-1983, we thought that New York was a trash pit, and then it's had this incredible facelift. Now we think of it as a city on recovery. Maybe Todd Phillips is asking us to think that's not so true. Well, that's been in the news quite a bit lately, is in the 20 years that I've been coming to New York, I came right before its peak of Giuliani's Disneyfication, but crime is going up. The amount of robberies, the, the amount of muggings, those things are back on the rise, and police presence is increased because of it, but especially in the tourist areas, yeah, it is something to be aware of. And this movie is so New York, I thought, how perfect, I'm seeing it in New York, it was filmed in New York and New Jersey, I completely forgot about Gotham City for like the first half hour. I thought this was just taking place in New York, and then they finally said Gotham, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a Batman movie, isn't it? <laughs> but like that Suspiria remake, my question was, okay, if you're gonna do a period piece, unless, you know, you're, you just want to tell a Victorian tale or something, if you're doing a remake or something like this, where it's an adaptation, there's got to be some reason to set it back in a different time, and why not set it in modern society where, hey, we think it's clean, but it's falling apart. Like, out here in LA, like, there's a huge homeless problem. They're talking about the bubonic plague coming back because of typhoid on the streets with the homeless and super rats. I'm sure that's going to be in the news someday for real in LA because this homeless problem is getting out of control. So, you, when we get into the politics of this film, it feels very dated. It feels very Occupy Wall Street. It's got a weird vibe to it. I'm, I'm trying to see, okay, is this about modern times? I guess that's a pun because <laughs> modern times is actually in the film, but... Yeah, it feels like it's all over the place to me. I also think it's a good counterpoint, though, because we have had a lot of 80s nostalgia going on. You know, Hot Tub Time Machine, Take Me Home Tonight, It to a degree, Stranger Things. It might be nice to remember not everything in the 80s came out of a Spielberg suburb. You know, <laughs> there was a lot of crime. New York was very dirty. Just remind us a little bit more of the early Reagan years and the late Carter years. Yeah, we tend to romanticize the 80s. That's very true. And here is something that I pegged around like 1981-82. From all this bric-a-brac in the background, the movies that were out, I saw an advertisement for Atari 2600 in there. I definitely think it's not the 70s. Even though it carries over a lot of the aesthetic of the 70s, we are in the early 80s that is happening on here. And I do think that we like to tell ourselves, much like a clown, we prettied ourselves up with face paint and said, New York looks cleaner, it looks nicer, it's a better place to be, but it isn't an easier place place for poor people to live. And if you're looking at this movie in terms of class warfare, Jacob, I don't think Occupy Wall Street is a dated concept. I feel like that is very present. It's not something in the news anymore, though. Maybe not that specific movement. Class warfare, 1%, all of that feels incredibly topical. And I think this movie is saying, if anything, the disparity has gotten even bigger. That's why we can look at this time and see it as the beginning of where we're at now. Yeah, the death of the middle class, the widening of the gap between the impoverished and the rich, that is still really topical, even if people aren't camping in that little park here in New York. But while feeling topical, definitely stores going out of business was a big thing in the 80s as well as now, did they have sign spinners in 1981? <laughs> I see them all the time now, but I've actually done that as a job when I was younger, but I don't know about 1981. Yeah, what an introduction for our main character. Arthur Fleck, we will see him at this makeup mirror, trying to put on that smile, but the mascara is streaking, there is a tear running down his face, 
And then what is all of this production for so we can get out there and advertise everything must go and get beaten down with that very sign that he will have it stolen from him, chase his perpetrators down to an alley and just be beat to the point that his squirting flower on his lapel spurts like blood. Why would you chase someone over that side? I mean, why would you chase down more people than you so hard just for a cardboard sign? Did you see? He's That's coming out of his paycheck later on. You got to return the sign. Yeah, absolutely. This is a world of absolute despair where this is everything to him. His livelihood, it's, he's a clown for hire. And I don't know how one makes a living as a clown. I assume if you didn't join the circus, you're kind of screwed. You're a sidewalk <laughs> performer. I'm telling you, Stuart, when I did the sign spinning thing, we had to paint ourselves like clowns like this is a weird little industry like some dude just has a clown for hire shop yeah haha's is a temp agency essentially that'll send clowns wherever they're needed in this case it's a music store that's going out of business and it just sets that tone what a wonderful portrait of despair wafting off the screen you know if you didn't realize that this was going to be a different kind of dc movie you know it within seconds it's very clear this is more dramatic than it's ever going to become book. There was something here also. Arthur wasn't the only one outside of that music store. We hear this piano theme as what little opening credits we have go. Arthur's kind of dancing to the piano music. There is a piano on the sidewalk being played. I am going to postulate the theory that all music, pop songs, and score here is diegetic. Everything is coming in the movie as Arthur hears it. At times, the score is going to rise up like a wave, drowning out the voices where you can hardly hear the vocal tracks. I think that's all in Arthur's head. I think that's Arthur hearing rushing in his own head. I don't think there's anything added to this film. I think everything we're hearing, when there's a song, we're going to find out, oh, that song's on the radio, or there's a piano player playing the music. Everything is from the point of view of this character, and it's an unreliable narrator. It is a character that is experiencing extreme mental illness, bordering on a psychotic break. So, yes, can we trust everything that we see, everything that we hear? No, but I agree. Everything we experience is through the eyes of our main character, Arthur here, who, who after being beaten up, goes to see his social worker and announces that he's going to try and turn all this pain into being a stand-up comic. He thinks that his salvation ultimately is to be able to take all of this tragedy and make it funny. I'm telling you, with little guidance, he could have been a Tom Green. He could have been an Eric Andre. Like some of these anti-humor comedians that I actually kind of like the Dada style. Give him a few more pills. Like he's going to ask for some more pills. He's on seven different medications and he wants more. Like, yeah, that knock-knock joke he's going to tell at the end. Great. But the most psychotic thing about him here, when he's with the social worker, the social worker is like, let's see your journal. And he's keeping it as a joke journal. He seems a little off. He's on a bunch of medication. But when she opens that journal, there's like hardcore pornography things cut out of magazines and pasted in there. That's a sign right there that something is deeply off about this person. It's more than just your average case of the blues. Is it something wrong with the person or something wrong with the city? And keep in mind, where was he dancing but a street lined with porn theaters? And we'll see that seedy influence. Again, the whole idea of he's trying to make what's around him funny. He's working with the material he's been given. So, is he damaged and fixating on the wrong things? Or is he surrounded by the wrong things and trying to polish a turd. Yeah, I guess I would buy into that if this was about a city corrupting people 
But it's clear that Arthur is mentally ill. When we get the scene with the social worker, he's with the social worker who's getting him prescription drugs and talking about his stay in a mental institution. And he's got a little card he's going to hand out about his condition. This is a person that needs serious help. And that just skews whatever message they're trying to give me because this person is so far gone. It's hard for me to see this as a reflection of Gotham. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about Stephen King's The Shining. First of all, because of that opening Warner Brothers logo, I thought I was about to see a trailer for Dr. Sleep or The Shining with that old logo there. But second of all, the problem Stephen King had with The Shining was that Jack Nicholson seemed insane from the first frame. He didn't seem like a good father who went insane. Here, Arthur is not starting at an even level. He's already been institutionalized. We're not going to find out for what. We get literally a flash of him in a padded room smashing his head into a window in some asylum but we're not going to find out why. It's not like this is a normal person and the city beats him down and turns him into a crazed killer. This is a person who starts off balance and is going to get worse. This Friday, we're reviewing Taxi Driver. We already recorded that. I think that's very similar too. We did say that in that movie, De Niro probably didn't start off at a level plane. Yes, what will come to the conclusion there was that he was damaged by things that happened in his experience of Vietnam War that we didn't see. We will kind of get hints as to the level of abuse as much as they can infer without showing in childhood. But it will be the journey of this movie to find out what specifically that was and what his origin is. But I do think he is a product of Gotham. I mean, I do think that if he is mentally ill, and yes, I agree with you, he clearly is, if nothing else, suffering from a condition that is not normal. You do not laugh when you are feeling stressed and feeling bad. Like, that is the opposite of what you should be doing. And he's been conditioned on some level to learn that. So yes, he's a damaged character, but I also think he is as much a son of Gotham as Bruce Wayne is. Yeah, there's a contribution, but this is a character that's, and maybe we're not supposed to take him seriously. He is Joker after all, but for Todd Phillips saying, you know, I tricked Warner Brothers and I'm making this gritty, serious film. This seems like a lot of pulp to me because this character is already so crazy. But I think he's stable. You know, he's one of those people who is trying to readjust back into society. Yeah, I think the pills are helping. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the things really take a turn in this movie when he loses that medication. But here, we're seeing him as a functional adult. I don't think he's completely right. Yes, he laughs when he shouldn't, and he has these harmful thoughts. But some of his jokes while self-depreciating that he's putting in that journal are rather amusing. The pun, I hope my death makes more sense than my life, C-E-N-T-S, that is a line that, if used right, could portray a funny look at poverty. I had the reaction that the social worker did. When he opens up the journal, what he was saying is my stand-up act. He calls it a joke book. I'm like, no, this is a window into (laughs) someone that doesn't understand what humor is. And uh, yeah, I have a dark sense of humor, and and this goes beyond this. This feel like suicidal thoughts, self-destructive thoughts, things that you'd have to be crazy to laugh at. No, again, if I was this social worker, I would be calling Arkham and like, get over here. He needs to go back. He needs serious help. Well, Arthur isn't wrong. She does not listen. Later in the movie, when she's having to break up with him because funding is cut, he has already called her out. You don't listen to a thing I say. You know, you just ask, if I have bad thoughts, all I have are bad thoughts. And here is a 
early example of that. He wants more medicine. I just don't want to feel so bad anymore. She's just punching the clock. She is not invested in him. She probably has way too many cases to care about. Yeah, he, he has a very small support system. Really, the only person that cares for him is someone that can't care for herself. It's his mother, who at this point in the movie is basically a shut-in. She rarely gets out of bed or gets off the couch. She watches television and waits for her son to go to the mailbox and get that letter that she feels is coming from her old boss, who just happens to be... Thomas Wayne, the dad of future Batman, Bruce Wayne. Yeah, I had no idea how much Batman stuff was going to be in this. I knew Thomas Wayne was going to be in this. I saw a trailer breakdown where somebody pointed to him in the scene where he's running out of the theater. So I knew that this was going to be a part. I didn't know how much. I didn't know if we'd even see Bruce or just deal with Thomas. But Thomas Wayne seems to be the only employer in town. Everybody we talked to who has a job or had a job worked for Wayne at some point. The rest are just scraping by. I'm not sure he runs the clown temp agency, but yes, if you... (laughs) Financially speaking, he is the 1%. He is the one that is doing well. He seems to be not impacted whatsoever by what's going wrong in Gotham, at least financially speaking. And during this scene is also when he comes home and sees his mother. She's there. She's writing these letters daily. He's mailing them for her. But we also get the introduction. He's coming home and with his mother, they're watching live with Murray Franklin, live from Gotham City. And they watch this nightly. And we start to realize Arthur is a character who lives in a very strong fantasy land. Yeah. Also that Todd Phillips really likes the king of comedy. Like this feels straight from it. Yeah. We got to bring up Scorsese again. And I feel like this is one of Scorsese's lesser known movies. Oh, it's so good though. Yeah, people need to watch it. If it's a comedy, it's a real unfunny one. And I say that as a compliment. Like you find yourself every time a joke being told, just feeling really bad for that. It's cringe comedy. And it really pioneered that. And yes, what's really interesting about what Todd Phillips has done is Robert De Niro is essentially Arthur in that film. He is this guy that's so desperate to be a stand-up comic and idolizes this Johnny Carson type, played by Jerry Lewis in the film. He oftentimes will suddenly be engaged with talking to an empty chair, but he sees Jerry Lewis there. And so we're getting a lot of that here with Arthur suddenly being in the TV audience, imagining that if the spotlight were turned on him, Robert De Niro, now recast in the Jerry Lewis role, would call him down here and give him a hug and consider him a son. I figured this was a fantasy sequence, but I wasn't sure when it first started. Could we have just had a jump in time? He's watching it at home. Could we have jumped and now he's watching it later in the studio But as the spotlight comes upon him, we're going to see in microcosm what this whole movie is. A self-pitying fantasy of a depressed person. I understand these kinds of fantasies where you think, oh, if only this person would look on me, they would immediately see. And that person could be a girl you have a crush on. It could be a famous person who can give you an acting job or a writing job. Whatever it is. In this case, it's a talk show host who can open the door to you to the world of comedy and take shortcuts instead of actually having to work on it and work your way up through the clubs. This whole movie 
is a fantasy of a self-destructive person. And you know what? I think it's a commentary on our obsession with celebrity culture. I don't want to spoil the King of Comedy, but I'll just go ahead and say this much. The deluded main character that Robert De Niro plays ends up getting his wish fulfilled. Probably. It's debatable. It might have been a fantasy at the end. But he essentially gets his own talk show, and so they don't call him Rupert Pupkin. This is not exactly a direct sequel to King of Comedy, but the fact that it's Robert De Niro now in that role... It feels like a commentary that we've gotten even deeper enmeshed into the idea that celebrity is the only way to live. That our only heroes could be idols like this. And I I think that is true about our culture. It definitely feels true. People obsess and give fame to people that don't have any obvious talent. Kardashians? Sure. Instagram influencers? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All of that. The celebutant craze has only gotten worse than when King of Comedy called it out in 1983. And by the time he's down on the platform, I know, of course, this is all a fantasy. And it is such a fantasy when De Niro looks and says, all this fame and things, I'd give it all up to have a son like you. He doesn't just want to be a stand-up comedian. He's a character in search of a father figure. He was raised by this sickly mother who he has to give sponge baths to and care for. And he had no male role model in his life. You know, his mother is fantasizing that Thomas Wayne will swoop down and pick them up out of poverty and give them some money. And really, without knowing who specifically, Arthur is having a similar fantasy of a father figure coming down and changing his life. You've got a car, and you've got a car. And I I knew someone that was like this with Oprah, just waiting for Oprah to read their letter and to pull them out of their circumstance. It's, yes, people in desperate situations hold on to delusion. And what works for me here is Joaquin Phoenix. This Arthur character that he's playing is not all there, but I think Phoenix does bring some sympathy to him, at least early on, because he's getting beat down when we see him without a shirt. He's going full Christian Bale, losing a ton of weight for this role, like not looking good. I will compliment, I guess, the cinematography. Like the screen I saw this on, the theater I went to, it was called the Onyx Theater, and it was a a digital, humongous LCD screen. There's no projector. I think it's just hooked up to a Blu-ray player or something in 24k or whatever it like it looked beautiful rich blacks and like Joaquin Phoenix's eyes the lights glinting in them like there was something distant about it but also something sad even though this is a unstable character you still feel for him he just wants a daddy what's not to feel bad for him because of that and I love the color palette of this film there's so many scenes that are either all in green light or all in yellow light They're taking the colors associated with the Joker. A lot of it's kind of a muddy brown, and that's the outfit he's going to wear, the green hair he'll have later. His own colors define the mood and the color palette of the majority of this film. When he enters into the world, we get a more naturalistic, but kind of gritty 70s style. But when he's alone, it feels like there's always some kind of color filter over the lens. Yeah, Joaquin is very good. This movie lives or dies by your ability to go along with him. And can you buy that this is a real person? Do you have empathy for this person? Is this someone that you're interested in seeing transform to good or bad effect? I think a lot of people by this point would be very turned off by the movie if he weren't captivating. And it's 
you mentioned Christian Bale. I think that's true. But because I'm in a Scorsese mentality, I'm thinking about the total physical transformation that Robert De Niro did in Raging Bull, which if you haven't seen it, he goes from being in fighting shape to 80 pounds overweight. And he just, the physicality of it. Yeah, when we see him tugging on those big clown shoes from the back and we see all those sinews on his back, the veins popping out, the kind of half-rotted teeth and everything is so harsh about him. It's a role without vanity. Again, I just think because we know Joaquin, we have an empathy, as we commonly do. When we see good-looking actors become disfigured and ugly, it brings something out of us and I go to him. Yeah, it's also something he sells the physicality if he's seen The Master. Kind of a similar character. That that character may be more violent than this Joker, but there is something about the way he's always hunched over in that movie. He is one of those actors that excites me when he's going to be in something because he just throws himself into it over the top crazy. And I'm iffy on Joaquin. After he kind of went a little nuts on Letterman post-Walk the Line, I wasn't quite sure. I did like him in her, but I thought he was actually laughable in Gladiator, if you remember that role. Oh, that whole movie is kind of laughable, but... (laughs) So, I don't know him. I've seen him work a lot, but I always lose him to the role. Here, I read he lost so much weight for some of those scenes that he was jeopardizing his own health, and they couldn't do any research shoots he could only do this like this one time and if he stayed this way he was going to have serious health problems heart problems i'm like you know you can do this with cgi right (laughs) you don't have to go de niro you don't have to have your rib cage like that you know if they can make chris evans a five foot two scrawny dude they can make your ribs pop out i'm sorry there's a big difference between gary oldman putting on a fat suit in the darkest hour and christian bell being dick cheney and actually putting on the weight and vice i like the physical transformation yeah and not only that but actors will tell you this is what i need to do in order to get there this is the process to have other people do it means that i'm not doing my job Which I get, but you don't need to jeopardize your health is the level I would say that you don't want to go to. You can lose a lot of weight and become very thin so that you have that look and then they can emphasize certain things like ribs poking out. And yet it's that commitment that compels me. That's what I'm saying. The fact that I know that he's up there doing that, walking on this wire, going to these extremes is the reason why your heart would go to him more than, yeah, if they just had a funny CGI shot. To me, what's impactful is seeing it on the screen. There's so many movies that we don't even know have CGI enhancement, dramas and things, because it's done subtly and realistically where it doesn't feel like an effect. Is it because you read interviews and behind-the-scenes stuff that makes you feel for him? Is it what you see on screen? Well, I don't read a lot of that stuff anymore, and I usually feel like I can spot a CGI tier, but yeah, I don't know for sure. What you're talking about is that eventually this craft might go away, and that is surprising, but right now, yes, because it's Joaquin Phoenix, I believe that he's going there doing that. I mean, this is a guy who pretended to retire and have a rap career so he could put out a mockumentary. He'll go those lengths. Yeah, and I feel like Joker is that kind of performance artist. He is Andy Kaufman. Like, what he finds funny in some ways is instigating people and influencing people and not obvious joke-telling. So, the fact that he has that on his resume, as well as all the drama gravitas... He's not Joker here. Right now, he's just little Arthur. But I do feel like I'm in his corner, and I'm fascinated that I'm watching a major motion picture that feels like a grimy little indie from the 90s. 
And I get what they're saying about some of the controversy in that. I mean, this is a character study movie. This is all about following Arthur's journey. And Joaquin is in literally every scene of this movie. There's not a single moment that is not with him and from his point of view. He has a lot to carry. He does it really well. I just start thinking of him as Arthur, and yet I do see him as an incel, you know? I know people in my life who get lost in gaming or get lost in some kind of fantasy where they do have a life where they go home, they don't have a lot of money, they don't have a woman, they sit there and they fantasize about somebody lifting them out of it. I'm rooting for Arthur because I know people like Arthur, but he's not exactly a person who deserves success. I mean, he's seriously mentally ill. Like, yeah, I heard all this stuff about how this is giving power to incels. I wouldn't say that because he, again, so far gone, so sick. I feel bad for him because he needs to be in a hospital. He needs a better therapist than the one he's seeing. But it's not because he's sitting around playing video games. Okay, but anybody who picks up a gun and does an active shooter situation needs a better therapist and needs institutionalization. Yes, I agree with that. I'm just saying I don't even see this as like a pro-incel movie or maybe making them the heroes. No, 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 no. I'm not saying it's pro-incel, but I'm saying he is an incel. I'm not saying this is a pro-Joker movie. Can I just butt in here? My ignorance, what the hell's an incel? I've never heard that term. Involuntary celibate. Yeah, basically a guy who gets really pissed because he's not getting laid, he's not getting the promotion, and he takes out his anger. Like, so many of these active shooter, mass shooters, are because the girl wouldn't go out with them. And you find these diatribes about how they hate all women, they're very misogynistic, and so the term is incel for this type of person. Okay, I'm not getting a lot of hatred here. If anything, I'm seeing a character that is strong striving to see the sunny side of life. That was the lesson that his mom taught him. Smile. Your mission is to bring happiness. At the start of this movie, that's where he's going. I don't see a whole lot of self-pity. I see him fighting that at every step of the way. Except he does have that tear going down his face as he puts on the makeup in the opening scene, though. He has self-pity. And he has a desire to have a romantic life. We will find this subplot that, again, feels lifted from both King of Comedy and Taxi Driver has the unwitting, unattainable girl who is briefly duped by the unusual qualities of the main character and agrees to a date. And here it's going to be Zazie Beetz, Sophie Dumont. She doesn't have a name in this movie. I know there's a name on IMDb and in the credits, she is never mentioned by name. She is such a fantasy girl that she is just she. Yeah, I wondered if she was even real when they first met in the elevator. We'll find out she is a real character, but much of her interactions are all fantasies, which, because I've seen King of Comedy, because I've seen Taxi Driver, I just expect it. I'm sure there are people surprised by this revelation, but I kind of expected it. We see them from the get-go fixate and reinterpret little things that she does. They get stuck in an elevator in their first scene together and she just says this building's terrible and puts a finger gun to her head and pretends to kill herself you know something that you or i might do without any kind of thought of it having larger significance he will replay that he will slow that down in his mind he will obsess on i mean is this the first idea that he needs a gun i mean he'll it'll also be introduced to him at haha's a co-worker will push one on him and say you need to protect yourself now that they've beaten you with your sign but you could say that it all comes from, I'll call her Sophie because that's what IMDb called her, but Zazie beats here. Yeah, and this kind of fixation does 
go incel. And I did think this whole thing was a fantasy for so much of the movie. The movie eventually commits to this so much that I did end up thinking it was real right before it was revealed to be a fantasy. But yes, this is probably one of their only two moments of actual interaction. But, you know, in Taxi Driver, there's Sybil Shepard. She knows she's in a different league than Travis Bickle, but she does eventually grant him a date because, well, he's just direct and he's unlike any other guy in the office and why not give him a shot? She's lonely and bored and he seems to see something about her. You might tend to think she's a single mother. She works on, uh, the street is Manhattan's financial district, William Street. It's Gotham Savings Bank. She probably is in an environment where she she is not seen all day long. To finally be seen by someone, you might suspect that she is curious enough to go on a date, agrees to go see him at his comedy club. Yeah, but you get a scene where he just walks into her room, I mean, jumping ahead a little bit, and just starts making out with her. I'm like, okay, this is all fake. Everything I see from now on with her is fantasy. I don't even believe the scene where she comes to the door and says, did you follow me all day? He stalks her the day after their little interaction, and he's in this creepy hoodie and following her as she drops her daughter off at school and following her to work and everything. When she comes to the door and says, were you following me all day? No woman isn't, you know, oh, he saw me. He stalked me all day. That's so sweet. The moment she is okay with it, I'm like, this is in his head. This is not real. As Sybil Shepard kind of went with it, we've seen examples of it in the Scorsese universe. But when they start making out, Stuart, do you buy that? Oh, no. Obviously, there are times, again, the fact that he slows down the elevator exchange and fixates on that gun and later does that gun himself, he's an unreliable narrator. We know that he will twist reality, but is he creating it part and parcel? Like, is the whole thing to be distrusted? We won't really know until their final scene together. But you do mention that daughter... We do get a name for her. It may be that we never hear the name Sophie for her, but her daughter is named Gigi, as in Gigi Allen. I thought that was a nice nod. But what I like is we don't spend too much time in this routine. You know, we get Arthur checking the mailbox a couple of times. He's already been chastised by his boss because he lost the sign. He's on thin ice. The boss is obviously projecting some of the other guys don't like you when it's obvious the boss doesn't like him. It's not going to take too much for Arthur to get fired. I feel like there's a lot of setup here. It takes a surprisingly long amount of time to get to where they're building, which is the shootout on the subway. It will be close to half an hour before he begins to move towards being Joker, which is screenplay formula. That's about right. But because all of this is such misery and because most mainstream films don't dwell on such misery to such an extent, I felt like it was a long period of time just watching Arthur failing. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm watching this. I'm like, okay, this is dragging a little bit, but they're good scenes. I like Joaquin Phoenix. I was really holding judgment till the end. I'm like, I want to see where this goes. What are they going to try to say about this mentally ill character and his journey, like showing all this misery? What is it going to mean? So once that gun is introduced, I'm like, okay, we're going to go probably a little bit more conventional. I could kind of see the path for this film now. And again, I don't think any other clown is his ally. That Well, at first, Randall does seem to at least be giving him a gun. He's like, you can pay me later. So I assume that he's going to try and get some money out of this guy. I didn't know he was setting him up to be fired. But in fact, that must be what he was thinking. He wants that sweet Patch Adam gig at the <laughs> hospital. He's jealous. 
Yeah. yeah, I wish that was a little bit more played out because he's going to deny the gun. He's even going to lie and say Arthur tried to buy a gun from somebody there. I wish I understood Randall's motivation there a little bit more because even later on, he's going to show up and be acting like a friend. It's not like Arthur seems hated by these other clowns, nor is it that, yeah, Arthur's getting all the good clown money. And I was thinking the killing joke again. I thought maybe Randall was with the mob and that would be the favor that he would want later if he read the killing joke. That's kind of the path the Joker takes this failing comedian that needs some money and does a job with the mob and it goes horribly wrong. Yeah, it's kind of darkly humorous when he's tap dancing. If you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet and out pops a gun. We're feeling for this guy because we know why he's caring. So I get that, like, on one hand, you might really judge this character. Why would you bring a loaded pistol around children? But at the same time, we know that nowhere he goes is he safe. Even in a child's cancer ward, there may be somebody there that's going to sucker punch him. So I get why he did it, and I get why he's fired. I love the cover-up when the gun comes out and he, like, stumbles after it and then he just makes the shush motion. He's, like, kind of trying to be a clown. And, th- and then he tries to claim it's a prop. I want to know what clown uses a gun as a prop. I don't know. Maybe he's going to have flowers <laughs> shoot out of it. Yeah, it's amazing. I also like the scene It happened just before that where he's at home and he's trying to use it like a clown. Like, again, his mentality is not to hurt people. He is really trying to make them smile. And so he's watching this old Fred Astaire musical where they're doing these slap that bass number. There's like all of these black people that are in the bowels of a cruise ship dancing around and the white guy comes and tap dances and steals the spotlight. We see Arthur dancing around with that gun as well. He accidentally puts a bullet into the wall. Mom freaks out and he's like, no, I'm just watching a war movie. In a way, he is. It's a class warfare movie. It's setting up the idea of really the crux of this movie. The most controversial aspect of this movie is that it's going to send the message. Arthur is going to believe the poor can't afford to be kind to the rich. You have to kill the rich. But it's not like Arthur is attacking the rich. He's not targeting them when he's going home from losing his job. You know, I've always liked the subtle detail that when we've seen Arthur after his work, the makeup's mostly gone, but it always leaves some of that white face makeup on the sides. I love that detail, yeah. And here, he's going home in full clown makeup because he had no job to go to to take it off, and he's on the train, and this woman's being harassed. He starts his uncontrollable laughter. These three Wall Street dudes are targeting him just like the gang did at the beginning. They are even going to get him down and kick him just like the gang did at the beginning. He shoots in self-defense, but it's not like he was like, here are some rich guys, let me target them. Yeah, but that's a choice by the writers, is to have some Wall Street bros come in and be the ones who harass him. Like, that is trying to set up a class conflict with this film, and I agree. We've seen lots of people attack him, and to read too much into these brokers coming in and beating him up, and it is self-defense, but I think what they're going for is how whatever the true story is, it always gets spun into something different. And it's the media that spins this into a class warfare issue when it was really mostly self-defense. We see him go a little maniacal with the last victim where he actually goes after him and shoots him dead. This is a really incredible moment because we've seen this scene a lot. We watched five Death Wish movies and this has a moment that is like all of those and yet not because in all of those films, it's the street that attacks, right? It's the hoodlums. It's the product of a dysfunctional society going around harassing people that attacks the good citizens. Here, it's the drunken good citizens having their way at a woman, like flicking french fries at a woman. 
Well, why would you say they're good citizens, though? Because they're Wall Street guys? They're rich? Exactly. Because in a death wish scenario, the victim is always someone of middle or upper class. And they get attacked by the bad guy who is the product of the poverty and the dysfunctional society. And the twist on the formula is here, the emblems of society are actually the hoodlums. They feel they can walk into a train car and see some woman sitting alone and just harass her, flick fries at her, do whatever they want. I mean, I think that their attack probably would be on her had Arthur not started uncontrollably laughing. They don't notice him until they hear that laughter. I think today, honestly, if you want to go to a certain view, there's no bigger evil than a white adult male. And I think that in this day of Me Too, those guys flicking fries at the woman, making a pass at her, getting rebuked, and then ganging up on her, that is shorthand today. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You could set this in the 80s, but it's coming out in 2019. You're gonna be thinking about what's going on now. So it's self-defense. Revenge type story. It's someone that you like. It's someone that's well off. And he's going after those who persecute what typically we would see as villains in a movie. But then, again, thinking about Scorsese and Taxi Driver, there you had Robert De Niro, a taxi driver without a lot of money, targeting a rich politician. So I do think that there is a little Scorsese in this. Yeah, at this point, it's personal. He's not thinking about a larger political platform. He is thinking, oh my god, I'm down again, and now the difference is I have that gun. I should probably use it. I think the moment somebody runs from him, I think we're seeing the first moment in his life that he feels he has power. He has always been put upon, and that's why I think he chases the third guy down. It goes from self-defense on the first two to, hey, I am powerful, let me use this power. He puts every bullet he has into that third guy. Look at what Keen did in between. Bang, bang, two of them dead right away. The other guy gets it in the leg, limps out of the car. He doesn't chase after him. He puts the gun up to his neck and thinks about doing what the woman in the elevator showed him to do. He thinks about just blowing his head off. It is the realization that he could do something about it. That empowerment changes him. I'm going to start becoming the active guy and not the self-defeating guy. And so, yes, we get a, it's a rare case of where they're emulating a different 70s movie, not made by Martin Scorsese. There's a direct reference to French Connection with the guy trying to go up the subway steps, getting shot in the back. Yeah, they'd wait to the last second before the door closed to jump off because they know they're being pursued. If he felt bad about killing the first two, if this was true self-defense, I mean, you, you let the guy, you wouldn't walk over and just shoot him down. No, the first two were self-defense, and the third one is, hey, I got swagger, I got power. And we see that from that moment. You know, he runs away in fear, but he pulls it together in the bathroom, he starts dancing. This is where he engages in that fantasy of walking in on Zazie Beats and just... Can I just say, give me two hours of Joker dancing? Like, film of the year? And again, that bathroom was all in that green light, like the green hair he'll have later. These are Joker moments, and this is where he strikes that pose that's on all the posters. Right, so he is becoming joker at this point as it should be the turn into act two is he is now on the path to becoming what we know he will be because we know how this thing ends it has a tragic quality to it we know that it will end badly and yet at the same time we are impelled to see it through because he's a victim and we want to see him get a little justice so those are the push and pull of act two I think the turning point is when he sees how the media reacts to it and he kind of gets a hero complex but we also saw 
here in the build-up to Act 2, he is trying to improve his stand-up comedy. He is going to stand-up routines and taking notes, and he doesn't even know when to laugh. He doesn't even know what a joke is. He's laughing at the setup lines when everybody else is laughing at the punchlines. You know what? I do that sometimes because I could see where the joke's going, and I get to the punchline before the comedian tells it, so... No, no, that's not what he's doing. We know very well that he just doesn't understand. Oh, I know, I get it. He doesn't understand people... And we can't be sure that he's laughing. Like when he's doing a belly laugh, that may be an expression of being uncomfortable or not understanding. I'm confused. I don't get it. Yeah, and I love his notebook that he's keeping of talk about sex. The audience loves it. Work the audience. I do feel bad for him, not because he's someone that just can't get the girl, but because he is a sick person that needs serious help and he can't function in society. Like he doesn't understand it. There's a line I'm seeing people clatch on to, and it is... A true moment of sympathy when in his journal, what he wrote was the worst part about having mental illness is people expect you to behave as if you don't. And I see lots of things online about people discussing their depression and, you know, coming out about how they deal with depression and all of that. And I think this is a line where a lot of people are going to now identify with this character and be really on this character's side. Because in some way, even though he's more extreme, he's doing what I do. Yeah, and the other thing I think that's common misperception about mental illness is that when you have that break, then you become the killer. Like, you're sick. It's important to stress, this doesn't start Arthur on the path to being like, I'm going to go find more people and kill more. Like, Charles Bronson did that in Death Wish and felt justified in it. But that is not what Arthur takes. His mental illness is not leading him to be more and more homicidal. He is still clinging to the dream he can make people laugh. He just doesn't know what laughter is. That crying and laughter are confused is why he's going to reach his Joker persona. Yeah, around this time, a lot of bad things happen. He sees the social worker, finds out funding's been cut. I guess this Thomas Wayne isn't as nice as the one <laughs> that we saw in the Christopher Nolan ones, where it felt like he was funding the entire city. This feels very much like a commentary on Reagan, where we're going to cut funding for mental illness, and that's going to cause a huge homeless problem. They just can't get their meds anymore, and that was a huge issue in the 80s. But Thomas Wayne isn't in power yet. Thomas Wayne is using this murder as a springboard to launch a campaign where he goes, I'm the only one who can help these people, these clowns. This may never get a sequel, but I think it would fit in that Snyder DC universe, like Thomas Wayne as Donald Trump and just like, I'm rich and I'm going to jump on this murder and use it to propel my political career. And it is a weird portrayal. Like, okay, this is gritty 70s Scorsese, Thomas Wayne. Okay, fine. It is weird if you're a big diehard of the comics and you want that comic continuity. This is not your Thomas Wayne. You called out Trump. I don't think there's any way to not think about Trump when watching this movie. And you can probably come to different conclusions as to... Sometimes I think Joker's... Trump and sometimes yes. I think Thomas Wayne is. Yeah, I actually see Thomas Wayne more as Mitt Romney. If you remember the <laughs> moment that really hurt his campaign was when he got caught on videotape dismissing all those people that will never take responsibility for their lives, will never work, will never do anything. And that's the mistake here. Thomas Wayne sees an opportunity. It's actually kind of funny. He's like, I consider these people family. I never met them. They were just my employees. But that's family to me. And I want to take care of this by becoming mayor. And you're going to vote for me. But then he really screws the pooch by saying people like me, he says something to the effect of those that made something of their lives will look at those who haven't 
as clowns. And that is the line that's going to incite a million different clown masks throughout the city. They wanted Alec Baldwin to play Thomas Wayne. I mean, I saw Trump in this character, but if you'd had Alec Baldwin there who plays Trump every week on Saturday Night Live, I think it would just have been too in your face. I like the guy they get for this. He's a character actor. He played Ghost Rider's dad in Ghost Rider. He was in another Batman movie. Yeah, he played the politician that gets kidnapped in The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, I don't feel like the 1% character is Trump. I feel like that's actually the person that Trump campaigned against. Yeah, no, that's why I said this feels weirdly dated when it's about Occupy Wall Street, because yeah, Trump is a populist. He found those poor rural white people and championed them. You know, these are people that felt like they were left behind, and because he championed the downtrodden, the jokers, he became president. But yet Thomas Wayne is a business person with no political experience, basically buying his way, maybe he's J.B. Pritzker, buying his way into a powerful government office. Well, you could say that about a lot of politicians, frankly. I think it's helpful to throw away the labels of a specific politician in mind. I did not find this movie being pro or anti-Trump in any way, although obviously it's talking about Trump America. Like, that's where I'm at with that. Really what it's getting at is at the heart of all things is the disparity in class and the brewing class warfare we all feel might be coming. And in this realm, because we are stuck in Arthur's point of view, we can't know what other people are thinking, but we do because he's seeing more and more scattered throughout the city, kind of like uh, Guy Fawkes, this clown character. It's a police sketch that gets put on the front of the newspaper, and to many, it's a hero because they hate Wall Street that much. And I did wonder, is this another Zaza Beats moment where, yeah, he sees people wearing these clown masks. Is this all in his head? You know, again, I want my death to make more sense than my life. Is this his fantasy that he's inspired some movement that's not really there? That's what's keeping me interested is what is the reality going to end up being in this film? I also think it's funny that Thomas Wayne really doesn't get, I mean, there's a lot of ironies in this, but he's like, what kind of coward hides behind a mask too scared to show (laughs) his face? I'm like, well, your son, actually, what's he? impacted by the same misery that's making these other people do it. When you die, that's what he's going to do. And we're going to get an interaction between Joker and Batman in this film because, wow, this was a shock. He opens one of those letters that his mom writes to Thomas Wayne and finds out, at least according to his mom, that he is the love child of Thomas and Penny. I wasn't sure what to believe here, but I could see this, right? It's almost Shakespearean, the good son and the bad son. The fact that Joker and Batman have always been opposite sides of the same coin and that they both wear masks. I could see them making this kind of a retcon or doing it in this universe. In the end, I breathe a big sigh of relief when I find out it's his mother's psychosis. It's a little too cliche. Wait a minute. Why are you convinced of that? I wasn't convinced of that. I think this movie leaves it an unanswered question where his parentage comes from. I think that we will never know. We don't know who his parents are, but unless Thomas Wayne had a love child who he put up for adoption and Penny adopted, I mean, he finds the hospital records and reads them in black and white. He is not a love child. Penny is delusional. No, she was forced into an asylum after working for Thomas Wayne. Tell me that those things can't be created. But she was forced into an asylum after her boyfriend beat her up and then put her son on the radiator to cook. I do not believe that the movie rules that it was all in her delusion. I do not believe that at all. Just as I don't believe Total Recall proves that it was all real. It's open for debate, and honestly, I think it doesn't matter in the end. I think what they're afraid to do is invalidate all the cases that are out there. 
We know that these situations are popping up in the media all the time. He said, she said kind of stuff. By keeping it this way, we can just see that it's a problem and not point any finger at any particular person. Well, one, when that letter gets revealed, I start wondering, because I'm like, that would be a crazy way to go. Having Jack Nicholson as the Joker be the one who murdered Batman's parents. I'm like, they don't need to be that connected. And here they're connecting them, literally DNA connection to Batman. So it makes me start wondering about Penny's mental health. And then, yeah, how much are we seeing that is actually real? That seems like a lot of work to have this woman committed to hide this love child that maybe she adopted and you had your name taken off the birth. I don't know. It seems like a lot of work and yeah in the end does it matter in this movie yeah i think when we get to the end of this movie we'll discuss how much of it is even real at all i mean but in the way that it's presented in the flashback the only thing i can take that as is quote unquote objective reality in which he finds out it's a lie and he gets upset it's not too objective because Arthur is going to be in that mental ward, like watching his mom give this interview as an adult yeah otherwise it would be the only scene without arthur in it I actually believe that she is his victim. That's actually how I ended up reading the movie. I take it as that there is a moment when he's going through paperwork. He finds a photo of Penny back when she was pretty and it's signed by Thomas on the back. Yeah, there were little hints like that. I did pick that up. Yeah. I don't believe that a crazy person falsifying a story like this suggests that they signed a non-disclosure agreement, which is what she says once this comes out. What happened is Arthur opens up one of her envelopes just to see what the contents might be and it says that your son and I need your help and the editing is skillful we cut away and suddenly she's just hiding in the bathroom yeah, I wondered if I saw your son. I'm like, dude, wait, did I really see that? And then, yeah, they don't do like the voiceover as he's reading the letter, like what it says. It's just a quick glance. By her suddenly being in the bathroom, I imagine he went into a rage. And he threatened her physically and was triggered by things that happened. And we didn't see it. All of a sudden, she's cowering in the bathroom and she, you know, is afraid to come out and talk to him about it. And he's calmed down a little bit. But again, he must know all of these things are in his conscious. I do believe that he wasn't so young that he would have forgotten all these things. They're repressed. Again, the movie is very skillful in the idea that he may or may not be the victim of Thomas or her boyfriend, his step father. And that's going to be a lot of what this middle of the movie follows. We cut to a scene where there's a little child in a gazebo and with the hair and everything, I thought it was a little girl. And I'm like, why is Arthur making clown faces at this little girl? Is he possibly going to kill this little girl? Then I see the child slide down a pole to follow. I'm like, oh, wait, that's Bruce Wayne. He's sliding down the bat pole. Yeah. What is this age difference? Like, how old is Arthur? Like, Bruce Wayne's, what, like 10 in this? And Arthur's 30 in his 30s, I'm guessing? Like, Batman's going to be fighting a very old Joker. Joaquin is 45. Okay, so if Arthur's 45... No, he's not. He says he's 36, I think. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. But I'm just saying Batman's going to be fighting a very old Joker if we get a sequel where Batman shows up. Well, I don't think they're really trying to do that. No, I, I agree. Interesting fun fact, though. This kid actually played Joaquin Phoenix in a different movie. If you saw You Were Never Really Here, it's a... Oh, this is the kid version? Yeah, this is the kid version of him. So again, it kind of implies that they might have biological similarities. Or maybe they just got along on set and they thought, ah, let's bring this kid over to do the next movie as well. And we get him doing 
doing a couple magic tricks, being very silent, you know, kind of playing that Joker. And then we get Alfred. I wasn't positive it was Alfred again. No names. They don't say Alfred. They don't say Pennyworth. <laughs> I thought Joker was going to kill the butler. And so I'm like, maybe Alfred's the guy they hire after this guy dies. But no, he's the one who says... Penny is disturbed and they've been through all of this and stay the hell away. Yeah, the fact that he reacts the way that he does makes it feel like a cover-up. It feels like he's participating in this idea of you're crazy, you're her son, and like all of that. I mean, again, it could be read either way. It may have just been a scandal of the time. Yeah, they know this history of this woman with narcissistic personality disorder who went around claiming she had a son from Thomas. That would be very much on your mind that this crazy woman exists. It could be either way. It's interesting to think about, as we would expect in a villain origin story, you always see yourself the hero of any story you tell. Well, the good guys start looking like the bad guys. Alfred, beloved, trustworthy, is just part of the cover-up and silencing the victim. We also see Arthur go to confront Thomas. Again, I was wondering, how real are these mobs? We keep hearing in the news, oh, there's these mobs of clowns and they're protesting. I'm like, is this all in his head? We do finally see one here. Like, we see a big mob in front of, I don't know, an old museum or movie theater. They're watching a Charlie Chaplin film. I don't know what kind of fundraiser you put on where Charlie Chaplin's the main draw. They have huge banners that advertise Charlie Chaplin, modern times. And this confused me because it was in the trailer. I'm like, yeah. is this a movie taking place in the Depression? But there are cars. I didn't know when it was set. Now I just find it really odd that they're all sitting around watching Charlie Chaplin. In tuxes. I mean, if they'd gone with, uh, if they'd gone with Limelight, at least that movie didn't get released in the States until the 70s, even though it was made much earlier because of the communist scare. But in this case, it's like, that's just random. You know, here's the thing. My experience may be colored by having lived in LA. I worked a lot of events. I wasn't invited. I didn't pay the ticket price to go and attend some of these things, but it was very common to have restorations of classic movies and inviting people to overpay to sit and watch them. That is probably something Todd Phillips thinks is common for a, a fundraiser. Probably not so much in Gotham, but in Hollywood, it is. And of course, they've selected Charlie Chaplin Modern Times because he's a clown that the 1% can laugh at for being poor. He's the little tramp. And it's also called Modern Times. Yes. Hint, hint. Yeah, you can beat up on the symbolism. I'm going to take the opposite and say I think it's clever. I think that's smart the way that they're trying to mix 70s Scorsese, 30s Chaplin, and today into this subjective stew. I think that maybe it's always been an issue that the 1% has always laughed at us. And I do wonder how much of the scene actually happens. Does he actually confront Thomas in the bathroom and get punched? It feels like a power fantasy that he's having. That I'm going to go and see. Of course, it ends up with him losing. But for Arthur, it does feel like I'm going to just slip past the police and somehow find this usher uniform to put on. And then at one point, he takes that usher uniform off in the bathroom. And this rich guy, maybe it's just commentary that they just don't even see the poor. There he just go. walks by him and doesn't even notice that this raggedy man in a hoodie's there. And I'm like, is this a fantasy? Or, yeah, is it that commentary? I took this as real. I mean, I thought it was a little bit convenient that he was able to just find that Usher uniform. But the fact that he does lose so badly here, and this is where he really starts to acknowledge the possibility that Thomas isn't his dad. I don't think this is all in his head yet. No, no, of course not. This movie, when you think about its larger preoccupations about how things are interpreted, subjectivity is this a comedy or is this a tragedy? 
To the audience sitting in the movie theater now, this looks absurd. It is funny that he can put on a suit that doesn't fit him, walk through all this security and this area where people have paid top dollar to get to, and nobody notices him. That's the comedy of it. They're going to play with the idea of, of dramatic reality and comedy. But I do think the dramatic reality is, yes, they don't see people like this. They would assume if he was a protester, he'd be wearing the store-bought clown mask and standing outside screaming insults. They wouldn't see him in this way. And I do like the cut, which made me wonder, is this objective or subjective? Because, you know, he gets punched, he's standing in front of that sink, and then it cuts and he's in his apartment standing in front of that counter in that same pose. And then he doesn't put the gun to his head. He puts himself in the fridge. That's a weird scene. That right there, I do not understand that scene in this movie unless... This is suicide. I don't know what's uh, attempted suicide. I mean, he's always fantasized about shooting his head. You got it, Arnie. Don't walk away from it. You got it by the balls. Yes. He is always flirting with the idea of killing himself. Always. And you know what? If I was in Vegas, I would have put $10 down. I'm like, oh, the rest of this film is his dying fantasy. How he's going to have his death makes sense. Because it's such a bizarre scene. I guess, yes, he's often suicidal throughout it. But it's such a dramatic scene. It draws so much attention. How he's pulling the food out and then the racks. And, you know, set in the 80s. I'm thinking Punky Brewster trapped in the fridge. <laughs> there may be a reading. The end of this film, it goes black. And there's just a little white light. And you hear that laughter. But then we cut. And we see the Joker in another scene. So I guess it's not a fantasy. But I was willing to bet that the rest of this film was a death fantasy as he's died in that fridge. Hey, the Joker said he likes his past to be multiple choice. I think he died in the fridge as one of the choices. <laughs> yeah, we said a lot about this on Taxi Driver. I mean, I definitely think you can have that debate about whether Robert De Niro is still driving a cab or not at the end of the film. Uh, yeah, it's subjective. What we're getting to is the point where we can no longer say with any level of certainty what is true. So that's why he's getting closer and closer to becoming the Joker. He is still not advocating, I'm going to join the crowds outside and go kill rich people. Even though this rich guy won't give me a hug, I think he even says, I don't want anything from you. I just want to be seen. I just want to be acknowledged. He's not hitting him up for a payout. That's the mom that wants that. He just wants to be acknowledged. And I don't think that violence is really where he gets punched, but he does not think about that retaliation. He still wants to make people smile. He still has the chance to do that because that stand-up comic routine that he's tried to sell himself into is going to get him some play. That was one of the most painful scenes of the movie, is him getting up to actually do stand-up. And I used to, as a teenager, fantasize about being a stand-up comic. Stand-up was huge in the early 90s, and so it seemed like a viable career path. But the thought of actually getting up behind a mic is something I could never be brave enough to do. So to see him go up there with his book full of pornography and one-liners <laughs> and try to tell some jokes and then just get overtaken by his laughter and Joaquin... My God, what a performance where you can see in his eyes the pain that he feels his dream is slipping through his fingers because of his uncontrollable laughter. To laugh and show pain like that, oh, it was a great, powerful moment, but 
I do think this movie, I have to call it out on one thing. It seems like this whole plot point is predicated on viral videos. They don't have those back in 81. Yeah. 1981, he was bringing their big old camcorder to the comedy club to film it. Well, video was starting. I I imagine that there are some. People were not pulling out their phones to be able to film it. Like, no one could walk in with the camcorder then. No, the comedy club would have taped this. This is Pogo's itself filming every comic that comes up on its stage. I can believe that. I think that that's quite possible. Okay, so it was the club that filmed it. Yeah, the club would want a record of every comic because seeing your material is so important for a comic. Being able to have that tape and show it to somebody. If it had gone well, he would have wanted that tape. He would have wanted to push that on every agent in town. It would have been his ticket into stardom. As it is, it is, but more to notoriety. It will wind up into the hands of the talent agency at Robert De Niro's show. Yeah, and this morning after trying to fridge himself, he gets a call from, what, the agent. They want him on the show. Like, this is his fantasy becoming true. And can he trust it to be true? Again, he wants so badly to believe what his mother always told him, that his mission was to make people smile. And so this could be it. If, in fact, it's real, if he's not just another crazy voice leaving an answering machine message, then yes, next Thursday I get to be on television and finally get to live out that delusion. It's a bit much to swallow until you think about where we were in the early 80s. Johnny Carson and definitely David Letterman had characters they like to pull out that were there for being mockable, right? We talked about this. Harvey Picar. Like, that is why Letterman had him come on the show time after time. I definitely was thinking Picar because I watched those Letterman videos back when we did that review. When Joker comes out on stage there, it really felt like a Harvey Picar moment. Yeah, Crispin Glover was another one I thought about. Larry Bud Nelman, Emo Phillips. There were people that like, you laugh because they're just such a freak. And I can feel better about myself because man, look at that. Those people did get booked. They were put on there. They did give good television. And so even though it's a stretch to think that they would have gotten this tape and wanted it, I don't feel like it's outside the realm of possibility that all of this is true. Oh, no, I I didn't have a problem with this. I thought that was pretty believable, especially, again, back then, what was funny to people was different to what people find funny and acceptable today. And apparently Todd Phillips has a problem with that. But yes, we were more comfortable laughing at the mentally ill. Can I ask, what are you referring to? He said, comedy is dead because everyone's too sensitive. There will never be good comedies anymore. I'm paraphrasing. That is not word for word. Okay. Well, I mean, I definitely think that it's difficult to tell a joke at the expense of someone else these days. That's true. Yeah, but that doesn't mean comedy's dead. There's still plenty of ways to tell jokes. You know, it's a question worth asking. You know, if someone falls down the stairs, you're just as likely to laugh as to see it as tragic. Depends on the outcome, right? It depends on how it's depicted. But it is still someone being hurt. I mean, it's always someone that is the butt of the joke. Yes, I agree. You know what? And I am a uh, centrist here. I think, yes, work on your comedy. Make it so it's uh, less hurtful to marginal people. Punch up. And also, people, chill out and stop being so sensitive. Let's laugh. I mean, I think that's central to why Todd Phillips might have been right for this movie is because, you know, he does have the experience in comedy. And Arthur is striving to be funny on his own terms. He doesn't realize that it's because he's pathetic. And so that's the strain as we approach Act 3 is the fact that he believes that he can be legitimized, that he can be saved from this destiny of becoming a homicidal killer clown. 
Except the moment he starts practicing to be on the television show, which is a scene I love. He's got a VCR with a tape. Go watch The King of Comedy, straight from it. And he's got a bed sheet, and he's practicing coming out from behind the curtain, and sitting down, and waving to the crowd, and getting all that done. What's he gonna do? He's gonna shoot himself on live television. I mean, his death will make more sense than his life, because that'll be a ratings bonanza. But also, going into this, the police have been asking around. They've been talking to everybody at the HaHa agency, looking to see if any of those clowns could be the killer clown. And they go and check on Arthur, which makes sense. I mean, the way he left the office by punching out, smashing that time clock and things. I mean, he had a gun on the day the murders happened. He was fired for having that gun in the hospital. So, good sleuthing. For sure, he's a person of interest. You want to talk to him. And after you talk to him, you wouldn't be convinced that he's not. I mean, I definitely think they're right to keep floating around. You'd have other suspects. You'd have other leads. It's not conclusive. They may or may not know that the caliber of... I think it's interesting they never asked to see his gun because that might really help determine who shot the Wall Street guys. But again, this is in the era before forensic detective work anyway, so maybe they wouldn't be able to determine that. I don't know. Every bullet has a mark from the barrel that's like a fingerprint. And they knew that back in the early 80s. But of course, they're not questioning him at home where the gun is. They're questioning him in the hospital. And he's at the hospital because they were questioning his mother and she had a stroke. Like she just couldn't take the accusations about her son. And it's put her on the precipice of dying herself. And so I think some of that guilt is also keeping them from pushing this too hard. They know where this guy is going to be. They want to talk to him, but they're going to give him a few days to be in the ER with his mother. And this is where they convinced me that he really did have a relationship with Zazie Beats because he's going to be sitting vigil over his mother and we're going to see the neighbor from down the hall sitting with him. We've seen them at a donut shop. We've seen her go to a stand-up routine. Walking down the street. Yeah, yeah, we've seen these little interludes looking at the newspaper together with the headlines about the clown, but I still wasn't sure any of it was real until this moment where I'm like, all right, well, she's sitting there with him offering to get him coffee. I guess this movie just did a poor job of selling me on that it was a real relationship. But this scene, I think, okay, I guess they became boyfriend and girlfriend and I just didn't notice. Yeah, again, I think if you're familiar with the Scorsese films we've been discussing that you're not fooled by her. Right. There are many, many times where Robert De Niro in King of Comedy will be having a real relationship with someone, and then in the same scene, they'll cut, and we'll see his fantasy and cut back to reality. And so you really can't know, sentence by sentence, what is true and what is delusion. And they're playing with that here. Todd Phillips is not doing exactly what Scorsese did. It's not as good. <laughs> you know, maybe not as good. It's certainly not as original. I'm shocked that they have to go and actually reveal that she wasn't there at one point. I thought it was so obvious. And like, I don't think Scorsese ever did that in King of Comedy. He was skilled enough to show you that that was happening and doesn't need to make it totally transparent and put an exclamation point on it. You didn't have to do the fight club scene? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I think you always want to take the whole audience with you. And these movies are a larger audience than Scorsese movies. So more people are going to see this than they're ever going to see King of Comedy. So you do. You want to hold their hand. You want to make sure they get what you're telling them. Because some people might believe every time they see something, that's objective reality. They have never seen a movie about subjectivity. Of course, that's coming after the real break. The turning point is... Up to this point, it is a he said, she said tale, and he's now gone to Arkham Asylum, gotten the files, and if nothing else, 
relived all the trauma that he repressed, that he was tied to the radiator and beat in the head, and that his mother didn't protect him. You know, I think that is enough for him to suddenly have homicidal thoughts about her, and he does go to her and smother her with a pillow. He doesn't rehearse for his television gig until after she's dead. Yeah, because he thought his life was a tragedy, and now he realizes it's a comedy. Right, he's become Joker. I definitely feel like with this is act three. We've been about 70, 80 minutes into the movie, and we can now see Joker fully emerge. And that's a name he was given by Marty, because Marty's playing the tape and says, look at this Joker. And he latches on to that. You know, Marty was the father figure he fantasized about, and Marty has now given him a name. Yeah, I feel like we've had a lot of setup for all these people, and the way that Arthur is going to come to terms with them, we can assume that they're all going to be killed in mass. It was not a surprise that he smothered his mother. I figured that that was going to be a part of the transformation. I definitely figured that Robert De Niro was marked for death. Question for the room, because they walk away from it. I feel like the movie flinches, and they just don't tell us. Mm, I know where you're going. He also barges into Sophie's apartment, and she is shocked. This is where we learn how much of that was a fantasy. She's like, who are you? You live down the hall, right? Should I call your mother? And cut away. We don't know what happens to her. Yeah, he does the gun to the head thing again, and then cut. Did he kill her? I don't know. I honestly think it could go either way. I left the movie going, I don't know that she's still alive. We never see her again. But it's not as obvious as later in the movie. He's not leaving bloody footprints. I don't know. I have two ways I can go. I can be talked into either. I tend to think she's dead because, well, one, he's going to be Joker and Joker kills. But two, there is a motif going on in this movie of orphans. Children that witness the murder of their parents. We're going to see that with Bruce, Arthur. His parents weren't murdered, but I definitely, he saw a lot of trauma at an early age. And so there's that Gigi. And we know that she was in the apartment as well as that mother at that time. I have a feeling they might have filmed a scene where she saw an act of violence or was the subject of violence. And they just decided omission is better. I feel like if that was the case, those two detectives that keep knocking at his door, they just get a warrant and arrest him at this point. There's a lot of connections there. You want to bring him in for questioning. And I didn't think about it, but thinking about it now, I don't know. I think he walked out. Again, I think there's still some connection. When we see the violence go on, it's, you you know, we'll see some on the talk show that he's committing. But again, this is more societal. He's more of the inspiration for the violence. Okay, and the reason why I can talk myself into that version is because of the next kill that he makes. Because the mother dies, people at HaHa's feel like they need to swing by, bring him a bottle of booze, tell him how sorry they are, even though they're not really that sorry. Randall, the guy that set him up to get fired, and Gary, who was a little person at HaHa's, drop in, and I know Randall's dead, right? We we saw... Arthur, at this point, he's dyed his hair green. He's in the burgundy suit with the clown makeup on. He is Joker. We're just waiting for him to put that into the eye, into the neck, and to take Randall out and pay him back. Give him what we've been waiting for him to get this whole film. But what's he going to do to Gary? The fact that he lets Gary live makes me believe that he might have let Zazie Beetz live. And I felt so bad for Gary because we see Arthur latch that lock when they walk in, and he's a little person, he can't reach it. And that did give me some dread. I'm like, oh, he's going to go after him. But no, he liked him. He's like, you're always kind to me. You could go. It played with my tension because this is the only really brutal kill in the movie. You know, we have some gun violence that had a lot of blood, got a pillow smothering. 
But this where he stabs Randall with the scissors a couple times and then just bashes his head into the wall repeatedly. There's your hard R right there. Yeah, it's splatter worthy of a Jackson Pollock. Like it's artfully designed blood, like just all over the place. Yeah, I love, you know, when he's dyeing his hair, he has that green dye like running down his chest and then he has this blood splattered on half of his face. Again, this movie looks great. Oh yeah, and you've got Gary there and I'm just like, he wants to go on Marty's show. And so he wouldn't want Gary to run off to the cops and say, hey, this guy just killed our co-worker, go get him. And so he's like, Gary, you can leave. But Gary can't reach the lock. And so he's going to go and unlock the door for Gary. And then he's going to open it a little and then shut it again. And it's like playing with me. I'm like, is he going to kill Gary? And Gary had a great line because Randall says, the cops asked all of the clowns about the murder. And Gary's like, well, they didn't ask me. <laughs> Guy's like, well, it's because it was a regular sized clown who did the murders. Yeah, that may be a factor too. Maybe he lets Gary live because he, by being small, he sees him as a fellow freak. Like, oh, anyone that's damaged by society or rejected by society, they're on my team. They're part of all of that. Maybe that's why he lets Gary go. I don't know. It is an incredible moment of tension. I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. And it's, you're right, it is the only time we actually see Joaquin Phoenix gleefully enjoying murder. Most of the time, it's either self-defense or he's influencing someone else to do it. But here, he actually loves paying back Randall for all of that. And Gary, well, all I know is if this were a Rob Zombie movie, that little guy would have gotten it too. I mean, that's the difference. If you think about that Rob Zombie Halloween, he killed Danny Trejo. He killed everybody. Rob Zombie tends to look at these same kinds of depraved situations and believes that the main character is unrepentantly homicidal. That is a big line in the sand for me. When that Rob Zombie, when Michael Myers kills Danny Trejo's character, I'm like, well, you're going to make this film about a killer, and now there's nothing sympathetic about him. Now it's just a snuff film that I'm watching. This one, this is a crazy dude, needs to be in a mental institution, he's a murderer, but I could kind of see a side. Like, he's picking the right victims for his brutality. Yeah, that's the tricky thing is like, if we saw him kill Zazie Beetz and her kid or this little person, we wouldn't go with Joker to the end of this movie. We wouldn't be darkly egging him on. I love the scene where after this murder, he is going to the Marty show and he's completely dressed up and dancing down those stairs that we've seen him trudge up so many times. And I knew there was some controversy when they screened this at film festivals. They're like, oh, you used a Gary Glitter song. And Gary Glitter is a horrible human being who is in jail for the rest of his life for atrocities beyond compare. Oh, really? I didn't know this. This is the song they used to always play at Kings game, the hockey team out here in LA. Maybe they don't play that anymore. I think it's been phased out. Yeah, not since all of the child molesting has been proven. I had no idea. Okay. Yeah, I had heard that. And I figured they were playing with that. I mean, all the musical choices here are here for a reason. Smile, all the things that they're doing. Again, it's all subjective. It's all coming from Arthur slash Joker. What he hears is commenting on what he's seeing here. There was just a big call for them to replace that song with a different song. But Todd Phillips was not one to roll over in any regard on this one. Quite the contrary. I think it's important that it is a controversial song. That it can be seen as a fun good 
good time and as a reminder of incredible brutality. I mean, I think that's where this movie lives. I love the moment where we cut out of his fantasy. The cops are at the top of the stairs and the music just cuts and we see him dancing to absolutely nothing. It's like, yeah, the music was all in his head. That's why I say the score is often in his head. This whole movie is his point of view, except for this one shot of the cops who are like, what the fuck is he doing? Yeah, and it is Joker's way, right? To never be the one to actually do the killing, but to influence others, to use his humor and his charisma and his charm. The fact that these cops are going to get it, not by his own hand. He's armed. He could probably take them out, but in fact, bring them onto a train that's filled with clowns because City Hall is having a huge protest against the 1% downtown, and they're going to be the ones to take out these detectives. And we're told they're not killed. You know, in case we found them sympathetic for just doing their job, they're in serious but stable condition at the hospital. Oh, I didn't hear that line. Oh, yeah, yeah, they say that later. During the big thing where we see all the news clips later on. But yes, he's able to escape running from the cops and go on live television. Yeah, I know he's off his meds, but he's so much more in control of himself than he seems to have ever been before. In a bad way. (laughs) But he's no longer subject to uncontrollable fits of laughter. He's no longer paralyzed with fear. He is perhaps a bit sociopathic. Yeah, what is that saying? Hey, you want to get over your uh, crippling anxiety? Uh, kill a few people. It will empower you. Well, I don't know that it exactly is advocating that. I don't see this movie obviously endorsing that as something the audience should take away and do for themselves. No, I'm exaggerating, but there's a subtext there. Like, that is what is healing him. When he was killing his mother, what he said was... I used to believe my laughter was the condition. Now I realize it was me, that I am this. Basically, he's just embracing that. He is going to try and say, I can still make the world laugh, but I'm going to stop pursuing it through the means by which it told me I should do it. My version of comedy involves violence and vindication. And when he takes the stage here, you're right, he's completely in control of who he is. Call me Joker. He makes a strong point of telling Mark Maron, I'm not doing this for a political reason. I'm not out here to do on your TV set what is being done down at City Hall. I am Joker. This is who I am. And the performance, Arthur, when he's behind that curtain, he's doing some kind of weird kabuki motions. You got to think Crispin Glover, right? Oh, yeah. you ever saw that (laughs) tape of him and David Letterman, like where he just started doing that? I really feel like they're channeling Crispin Glover in a drag queen here when he's going out there. He's very feminine. This is the most feminine Joker I think that I've ever seen. And it's, of course, because he's somewhat taking on the characteristics of his mother as well. Obviously, with this talk show and Robert De Niro, you're thinking the king of comedy, but there also, I think there's a slight reference here to The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, where the Joker goes on to the Letterman show with Dr. Ruth. Here we have, I think she's called Dr. Sally, but obviously a sex therapist. They're going to make some jokes about the Joker needing to get laid, and he's not going to murder the entire audience, but there's going to be a murder. So a little comic book nod here. And I did like Dr. Sally. I mean, when he comes out, he is so self-confident. I mean, he does three twirls. He just puts a kiss right on Dr. Sally's lips, which really makes her look disturbed for the rest of the segment. It's how he kissed Zazie Beetz in the fantasy. Again, he's living his fantasy. All the madness that he was trying to keep at bay, he's now letting run through him. My struggle is, okay, you want to do this subjective thing and what's fantasy, what's reality? I would like, maybe at the end, like, is he dying in the fridge and like the headshot of those cops walking in finding that body? Or we see the real tape of his performance here. If this all becomes fantasy and we don't 
know. We got to take it at face value. And then what are the implications of this crazy man just going around, kissing people, shooting people? I wish there was a moment of objectivity so I could see where this film actually stands. You're saying what its moral position is as to how we should feel about Joker? Or how the filmmakers feel about it. What is their point? To me, again, I feel like a lot of this, if you're a 14-year-old, it has a lot of angst, you're going to see this as empowering. Yes, I need to act out and just embrace my crazy side. If that's what this is saying, fine, say that. Make that your message, and then people could debate that. But I would like a little point of view of how we're actually supposed to take all this, and then I can decide if I agree with that or not. I think that Todd Phillips backs away from making any moral judgment about it and is simply trying to say, this is where we're at now. I agree. I think what's great about this movie, I've seen so many reactionary people saying, oh my God, this is a power fantasy and people are going to be inspired by this to go kill people and things. But I like that this art is a little bit dangerous and it's not going to give you a statement. It's going to start a conversation like we're having right now. Yeah, it would be terrible. And I do worry that someone that isn't in the headspace to appreciate it in an intellectual way might be inspired to do any kind of crime because they thought it was advocating live your bliss and live out your darkest fantasy. That would be sad. Walking out of this film, my first thought was, huh, this sure is an awful portrayal of those with mental health issues and the poor because they're just shown as violent, rioting. Okay, maybe that's empowering if you're of a certain maturity. I don't see burning the town down as a way to get income equality these days. But if you're convinced that the 1% did this to you, then isn't it your right to do so? Again, it is just calling out the class warfare that I see bubble up in lots of different ways in different conversations all the time. Politically, who we vote for, social media, all these things. Todd Phillips doesn't have an answer I guess because I'm politically aware, I understand this. I don't need Todd Phillips to just tell me and not provide any insight. I guess I just want insight. I don't need answers. I want insight. Not happening. Not what this movie's about. This movie is about making you feel something. It is not about providing answers. The insight is what you get when you reflect on this movie after. It's not being spoon-fed to you. But these are artists. Artists have intentions behind them. If I want to just go and paint a canvas all red, and I know artists do this and go, you figure it out. Okay, that's neat. But I want someone to make a statement. You defended Lynch so many times for doing just that, for being ambiguous. Yeah, but I understand his point of view. Like, I understand what's behind it. When the Joker's going to tell this knock-knock joke, great. I love it. I want to tell that joke. I love that kind of dark humor. I get that. It's what are the wider implications of, of how people are portrayed in this film. Again, Joker is mentally ill. He needs help. And this real life narrative, whenever there's a shooting, we don't want to address guns. We don't want to address anything. We just, oh, it's a mental health issue. Most people with mental illness are the victims. It feels like this is a very broad stroke of, hey, class warfare and all that. It's just not very deep to me. It's as deep as it needs to be. It's a reflection of where we're at. And I think the uncomfortableness for me is Joker makes a very good point. Those guys on the train were awful. We were kind of rooting for them to be put down. Movies do encourage us to engage in violent fantasy. We do think that that's all fun. That's all the entertainment value of it. But if you believe that 99% of the people in Gotham are being gaslit by the rich people into thinking all their problems are their own making, again, you could even look at Thomas Wayne and say, whether he biologically fathered Arthur or not, he is responsible for him. He deserves to care for him. He needs to show him more love and respect and more charity than he has. 
what would convince me more, so going back to The Killing Joke, that is a story about can one bad day completely ruin your life? And that is what the Joker is trying to prove by shooting Barbara Gordon and torturing her father, Commissioner Gordon, basically trying to make him into a Joker-like character. Because Arthur is just so mentally ill, it's, yeah, there is something about how to retreat sick people in our society. I just don't think it's getting that deep into it. Ultimately, my criticism, Todd Phillips said he was sneaking a serious film into a comic book movie. Mm, it's kind of a comic book movie in what is pretending to be a serious film. I disagree. I think that here... It's not focusing. I mean, the Joker himself says he doesn't care about these political issues. He doesn't care about the rich and the poor. He says that to Murray on the show. These other people are wearing the clown masks and protesting the rich. This is a movie about one guy and his descent into villainy. There's no dissent, though. He was already there. It was those meds. You read stories about schizophrenics. When do they kill? It's when they stop taking their meds and they say they feel fine. Right. This is showing him when he is off his meds and how somebody could become, to go back to what Alfred said in Dark Knight, some people just want to watch the world burn. This is the ultimate embrace of nihilism on behalf of Arthur, and he's going to do that by killing Murray on television. He's not doing this for political reasons. Whatever political you want to read into this, I do think that, as Stuart said, this is a reflection of where we we are today. And this is a way of Phillips, I think, saying we can't continue to have this economic disparity where the CEOs make billions and the low employees can't even afford a decent retirement. I mean, they say that in as many words about Penny working for Thomas Wayne, yet this is the result. The result is going to be violence and Yes, it is going to come through an insane person. I believe every active shooter is an insane person, and we're going to follow one of them through this. And again, how much of this is even real? Is he still sitting in that fridge and having a fantasy, or did he really kill Murray on the show and then grab the camera? I mean, we don't know what happens exactly after, because the next time we see him, he's in the back of a police car. We need to understand that Joker is a comedian, a dark comedian, and yes, you can be offended that he's using violence and how anytime a character uses violence, I mean, I think it opens up legitimate concern about what that represents. But through violence and humor, what he's really asking us to question, and it's a valid, interesting, worthy question to ask, is why does society celebrate some and not others? Why do we care when three Wall Street guys get killed and we don't care when a clown is beaten and could have died right there on the sidewalk? Why is one life worth more than another. Yeah, that was something that was on my mind because I'm like, again, this is basically New York City in the 80s. I'm not thinking Gotham. I'm like, there's got to be more murders than just three Wall Street bros on a subway. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Those are the ones that matter. Right. And so that's really all that this joke and that, I'll put that in air quotes. But the joke is we think it's so awful that these people got killed and so many more people die by the hands of those people all the time. And we don't show that same empathy. That is Joker's point. And is it fair? Is it right that Murray is the one that takes the bullet? Probably not, but he was the disappointing father figure to Arthur. And he did make fun of Arthur ruthlessly. Arthur's not in a good place to be mocked on national television. Kind of rude. 
Yeah, I always thought David Letterman was a little cruel. I actually never did like him for that reason. It felt like when he would haul these people out, there was an elitist, dismissive quality to it. And you know what? I'm not going to say that I don't have that characteristic. I think we all can feel superior to others. We can all get judgy. Joker asked us to put that in check. But that is going to set off the riots in town. I mean, that's going to cause looting, burning, murders. Batman. Yes. Probably already happening. I mean, I do think it was happening in tandem. We can debate about whether the direct act of killing Murray caused more violence. I think it was the cops killing the client on the subway that sparked it. Yeah, I think it was going to happen anyway, because I think people were mad. And there's a lot more people. You don't have to be mentally ill to be enraged enough to kill. That is what was going to happen here. We just see it in parallel. They pull back to all these monitors, and they're showing you some rioting, some a recap of what happened on Murray's show, and some commercials, Rolling Rock and Energizer, just to put it all in the context of commerce and capitalism. And yes, when Arthur finally gets to see firsthand his handiwork, he's in love with it. I mean, he's addicted. He wouldn't give up being Joker now for anything when they're driving him through the streets in the squad car. What's funny is, again, because it jumps, I thought he was in the back of a cab. And I thought he was talking to the cabbie. And then it, I realized, oh, wait, there's a big metal mesh there. He's in the back of a squad car. Yeah, I, I think he just gets hauled off to the asylum at this point because this is crazy. An ambulance hits the car, kills the cop. They know that Joker is in there. They're going to pull him out and like raise him like a Christ figure. <laughs> this is all just his fantasy as he's getting hauled off to the asylum. I don't take it as that. I take it as we live in a world where these people are celebrated a lot, or at least enough people can gather around a personality like this that they can make them a public figure and a celebrity of their own. He's making people smile. Yeah, but then this stops being like gritty New York and becomes just a metaphor. Like, how would these people know that the Joker's in that car when there's cops all over the place? How did they get an ambulance to ram it with? Yeah. I thought it was chaos. I thought it was happenstance. I thought it was like sugar at the end of uh, No Country for Old Men just getting in that car wreck. So did I until they pull him out and like they know who he is. Like, I feel like these people are rioting and they didn't have time to watch a late night talk show. Yeah, the, when I found out that this seemed like an orchestrated let's save our leader moment. And then I wondered if Joker was dead. The cop kind of looks dead there and they pull his body out of the window. He's bleeding. He's laying on the hood. I'm like, is he dead? No, he's going to stand up and be cheered. And again, this is like the fantasy that some of these people have. If I kill myself, then everybody's going to love me. Well, it is, but it was his lifelong dream. He wanted everyone to smile and now everyone he sees is wearing a clown face and smiling right back at him, sharing the same smile that he has about where we're at, that he found his purpose I guess we can be happy for Joker in that respect. That is what he has accomplished. And it's a great moment and a great metaphor when he takes his own blood and uses it to reapply his smile. Yeah, quite a chilling, that smile is one for the ages. That will be reprinted, memed, and we will remember, if nothing else about this movie, that shot as symbolic of right now. And happening at the same time, I always forget Joker didn't kill Thomas and Martha Wayne. Because of the Tim Burton movie, I always thought that that was in his story. In fact, we're going to see it's somebody else, someone just inspired by it, who follows that family out of the movie theater and into the alley. By the way, that movie theater was showing Blowout and Zorro the Gay Blade. Which do you think they took Bruce to see? Well, they took him to Zorro. It's always been Zorro. Yeah, Batman was coming out of Zorro when his parents were shot. They had to find the 1981 version of Zorro. The gay blade? I mean, that is about a homosexual Zorro. 
Is it really? Yeah, I thought that was weird. I'm like, that just must be an old Zorro movie where gay meant happy. No, no, no. This is a, it's actually rather funny. George Hamilton is Zorro. George Hamilton is Zorro? I never want to see that. And Zorro (laughs) is injured and has to ask his identical cousin who is gay to go out and be Zorro for a while. Okay, it actually sounds kind of funny. Gay Zorro is wearing like yellow outfits and orange outfits and the bad guy's like, like a banana? Is he mocking us? <laughs> well, you know, it might be another example like Charlie Chaplin. You can find it legitimately funny. I'm not attacking, but it's also a sneering, uh, looking down upon portrayal of uh, the underclass. Yeah, I mean, it's you couldn't make the movie today. No, yeah, it's very politically incorrect. And okay, you're right. If he's going to be future Batman, maybe this is where he got the idea of being a masked Cape Crusader. That's funny. It was a movie out in 1981. And yes, just as we always know, it was going to end. They get it in that Alley, and he's left to be another blood-spattered orphan. And they do a Tim Burton kind of callback because the guy who shoots Thomas Wayne and Martha, he grabs Martha's pearls and rips them off in slow motion. That's always been a big part of the Batman mythos. I was actually shocked that they went this far to tie it into Batman. I know there was a lot of people were trying to guess, oh, this isn't the real Joker. He's going to be the one that inspires Jared Leto, and we're going to see that at the end. And no, it feels weird that they tie it so much into Batman. I was really hoping for more of just a Joker film, just about a crazy clown. And the fact that they tie it so much into that mythos just makes it feel more like a comic book movie than Todd Phillips probably wanted to make. I think it's perfect. So I didn't anticipate they were going to go there. But again, the idea that we're going to be able to see through the villain's eyes why they're the hero and why the guy we always root for is the bad guy was a brilliant stroke, subversive. Yeah, and I pretty much knew this going in because we do see the Waynes in a trailer coming out of a theater. I was like, okay, that's got to be the theater where they're going to be shot in the alley. I didn't know if Joaquin was going to do it or if Joe was going to do it. I guess this is Joe in a clown mask doing it. (laughs) In a clown mask? But I kind of figured this is yet another way of looking at Batman Begins, right? It's, It's the prequel to the prequel and that it happens during this riot, it feels right to me. Since the Joker and Batman, again, two sides of the same coin, it's always been portrayed that way, that the Joker's ascension would cause Batman's ascension. I like it. But that's not the end of the movie. I thought the movie was over. It fades to black. We get a pause. But we're going to have this denouement where Arthur's in Arkham. Yeah, he said at the beginning of the movie that that was where he was happier than in the real world. And it's kind of a sense of the bureaucracy of it all. He's sitting across from a new therapist who looks exactly the same as the old therapist. And so kind of clockwork orange style. We've come full circle and not a whole lot has changed. Except maybe he's still holding on to the idea he can get out there and make people quote unquote laugh as hard as he does. Go cause some more terror. We see him try to escape here as we see some very old-fashioned the end credits appear. Yeah, I liked it that he was smoking and talking to the therapist and I just thought of a joke. Oh, what was it? You won't get it. You know, he's realized that his humor isn't the type that he could go up on stage and tell other people about. He probably killed the therapist, right? Because he's running away. He's got those bloody footprints. Or that's in his head. Yeah, either way. Someone's dead either in his mind or in real life. And yet the audience is experiencing this as some old-fashioned Laurel and Hardy bit. I mean, it's the orderlies chasing him to and fro and what have you. Again, what's comedy? What's tragedy? We're never to be certain of that at any moment in this film. Well, was the film comedy or tragedy? Jacob Stewart. Did you laugh with Joker? Jacob. 
this film reminded me of another one that I really struggled with, which I, I think is about similar material, and that was the remake of Suspirio, which was about how do you go about revolution? How do you go about changing society? And that one, you know, Stuart pointed out how it's about art and trying to change things through the culture. And this feels like the opposite. You know, the way to change society is to riot and murder. And I feel like both of those films are a reflection of what's going on today. Like, there are a lot of disgruntled people on both sides of the political aisle and how do we go about change and people talking about civil war and like awful violent things. So I think this movie does tap into those feelings. And no, it's not about trying to create thought-provoking movies and art and music and culture. It's about you got to pick up your guns and fight. That's a legitimate thing that we're dealing with in society today. But it's still something in this movie that I struggled with because the person that is pushing these ideas is a mentally ill person that's already pretty far gone. So it's hard for me to take it too seriously as like, you know, there's a subreddit. It's called something like, I'm 14 and this is deep. That's how I feel like a lot of this movie is going to be turned into memes for that subreddit, kind of mocking things that teenagers think are like thought-provoking and they're just kind of silly when you're an adult and you've experienced lots of things. I don't think this film is that deep. I think there are a lot of thought-provoking ideas. I think it could have been polished to have some more meaning, but it's a beautiful-looking film. Joaquin Phoenix is great in his portrayal of the Joker. I just don't think it lives up to Scorsese as much as it wants to be. It's an alright film. I could give it a recommend. No, I didn't hear that recommend right until the end. You tricked me there. I thought for sure. I'm really on the line. Like, look, have a conversation with me and I can tell you if you should see it or not. Like, personally, like if I knew someone's views. But for this show, I'll give it a pass. Stuart. I heard a lot of your complaints, and I think if I looked at Joker as a revolutionary and not an entertainer, I probably would be a little more indignant. To me, I'll take him at his word that he's a comedian trying to make us quote-unquote laugh at something that's not very funny about society, and that is we play favorites about who's worthy of love and who's not. Joker holds a lot of judgments about the 1% not showing enough love for the less fortunate. And, you know, it's also true of movie audiences. If they were honest with themselves, they don't patronize a lot of dramas about unchecked mental illness and abject poverty either. We don't really love people like this. Check the box office receipts of Requiem for a Dream or Gummo. They wouldn't cover the catering bill of a Marvel movie. This is interesting to me that the public is lining up for something they would otherwise recoil from. It's a verse for no other reason that we're finally ready to embrace a fairly extreme punk aesthetic in a mainstream film. And part of that is, of course, yes, the celebrity of it. This isn't just some any 35-year-old loser. This is Batman's most iconic villain. And some of it is the celebrity of the actor playing him. Like, we, at least some of us, I presume, are fans of Joaquin Phoenix. We want to see actors that can do that method thing and really physically transform themselves. Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver, A Raging Bull... Joaquin is giving us that. He's hypnotizing in this role. I'm fascinated watching him do this trick. And you can't rule out the fact that also movies, they don't come out in a vacuum. Where we are in society determines a lot of times what we're ready to consume as entertainment. Think about how Blade Runner was not a hit in the 80s when it was all about E.T. and shiny, big, happy, fun things. It took the depressing 90s for us to embrace dystopia. I think we're really ready to, to embrace and reflect upon dystopia these days. I feel it, it touches a lot more people. The reality that everything could just fall into chaos feels 
tangible in ways that it did not when I was younger. And so I feel like this movie is, you know, it holds up a macro digital lens to the failures of our times. It asks us to pick a side in a bubbling class war. And it asks us to see beyond a Batman franchise to look at the world we live in. It's not the first time this series has done that. I feel like Nolan did that. His trilogy was about post 9-11 American terrorist political fears. But it's cool. I always respond to when comic book movies can find something relevant. And I think Joker does. It's a really interesting movie to contemplate. I'll be with you, Jacob. I don't call it a masterpiece. I'm going to stop short of saying it's absolutely brilliant. I think it's overwhelming. I think I might even grow to appreciate it more as time goes on. I struggle with two things. The thing that makes me hold back from a high recommend and just give it a solid recommend is that A, I feel I've seen this movie before. This is a paint-by-numbers recreation of many Scorsese works that I'm attracted to, love seeing them done, but nobody gets excited about Da Vinci replicas, right? Like that's not as cool as the original. And also I think there is a cold detachment to seeing all this suffering. This movie doesn't ask us to feel more for Arthur, or at least I don't. I do intrinsically because it's hard to watch and to see people in this circumstance, but it's either too simplistic or disinterested in portraying the humanity of the situation. And so it, it ends up being kind of a exercise in visual designer grunge. But solid recommend, a real conversation starter. Everyone of the appropriate age, I'm going to stress that, don't take your young kids, but go see this film and you'll be able to see a character you know very well in a new light. Three for three on recommends, and yes, this isn't the best film I've seen this year, but it really astounds me how they can keep raising the bar on the Joker. Every time there's a new Joker, somebody's always like, well, how can you recast? How can Heath Ledger stand in the shadow of Jack Nicholson? Are you saying this is better than Ledger? Because it's better than Leto. I don't think Leto was better than Ledger. That wasn't a raising of the bar. No, there is barely a bar there in that film. We all never know how good Leto was, is the way I feel about that one. He was undercut by the material. Yeah, but Leto's entire conception of Joker, and I, you know, it may not be his, it could be the entire production company, but tattoos on the face and things, it was just, they tried to swing the pendulum so far in the other direction. But now I feel we've reached a new high with Joker, because I love Ledger's Joker, but he isn't a character. He's an agent of chaos, you know? It was a wonderful performance, but there's no there there. You know what I'm saying? He only exists as a reaction to Batman. I mean, what's the there here, though? It, this is a guy that's sick and just gets sicker. This is a character study where we get to see where he came from and an emotional journey as he goes from disenfranchised to completely homicidal and see how he can become the nihilist that Heath Ledger was. He could go on to be, if not for the time frame, the Joker in The Dark Knight because I feel that this Joker at the end of this movie would set a huge pile of money on fire just for the laughs of it. I think Joaquin Phoenix, he has to carry this movie and he does so very well. And I like, as we've discussed, the style that Todd Phillips puts into this. I've seen most of his movies and none of them, none of the hangovers, road trip. Hangover 3 wasn't as stylistic? <laughs> no, none of them had even an inkling that he could have 
this level of style. And I agree with what you're saying, Stuart. It is copying Scorsese, but Scorsese's best films are 30 to 40 years old. I mean, he's still making them, but I don't think anybody's going to hold up The Irishman next to Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. I've read those reviews, but we'll see. I agree. It seems unlikely. And so it's a copy of Scorsese, but it's a competent copy recontextualized 40 years later to make a different point. Yeah, it's not the end-all be-all of cinema. Any piece of cinema can be dangerous to the right person, but I don't consider this, you know, oh my god, the children, we must burn all prints the way I've seen certain people post. No, I would never advocate that. But I love that this is a conversation starter where you can have the questions. I love the ambiguity of it in a film that you can walk away and just take everything you see on screen as fact, or you can walk away and think, well, did he die in the fridge? Was he ever out of the institution? We got that flash of him in the institution in the beginning. Could this all have been an institutionalized fantasy? That's, it was all a dream though. I don't like that. I've never really considered that. I always assumed this was leading to some future where a Batman would fight Joaquin Phoenix. Maybe, but what at the end when he says he just thought of a joke and she wouldn't get it, was the joke that he thought of the whole movie? Could have been. There's a lot of questions that could be raised, and I like that. I like that this is a smart comic book movie and that DC is taking risks. That excites me. I like that, yes. <laughs> I'd like to see more genre entertainment take risks instead of try to play it safe all the time and just copy what they're doing over on the Disney lot. See this movie. I definitely think it's a really good recommend, and I suggest afterwards sitting down and ruminating about this movie. Does Joaquin deserve the Oscar for this? Well, it's a popularity contest, but I wouldn't be upset if he won it. Yeah, he'll be in the running. It's a movie that hangs on his portrayal. There are hundreds of movies like this, played by no-name actors in grimy little low-budget movies that everyone passes on the street, like, yeah, a homeless person on the sidewalk. We don't get engaged. The fact that people are going to be engaged with this one makes it interesting. The fact that so many people are going to see this, and yeah, are they going to want more? Will the financial success of this necessitate some kind of Joaquin Joker 2. I don't think Joaquin will come back. I don't think... Come on, I want to see him fight Ropats. Yeah, I just think that he's got that artistic integrity. That's why he didn't want to do Marvel movies is he didn't want to do endless sequels. Todd Phillips says the great thing about this movie is it stands on its own and there won't be a sequel. Joaquin Phoenix was asked by Variety if there would be a sequel, and all he did was stare into the camera and give an eerie smile. That's what I love about him. (laughs) Well, we are going to get another homicidal clown, Charming. It's not even that far away. We're getting a third one this year? Well, next year, February. (laughs) Oh, this Birds of Prey. Yeah, Harley Quinn is going to get her. Well, she shares it with some Birds of Prey, but I do think it's... Yeah, that trailer's doing nothing for me. But that's our next comic book movie on the horizon. Yes, but before that, next week... Charlie's Angels. It's an every other week retrospective series here as we go full throttle with the sequel. Hey, we got Crispin Glover filling in the Joker role for that one. And in between... Hey, yeah, and if you are thirsting for more of this aesthetic, this Scorsese style, we were too. This Friday, become a patron and you're going to hear our thoughts on Taxi Driver. This was also a patron pick that just lined up really perfectly in aesthetic. So if you haven't seen it, Give it a watch and then join us on Friday if you're a patron. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Will Jacob give the Angels a recommend for the first time? Is Bernie Mac a better Bosley than Bill Murray? 
Will we all come around and think Lucy Lou's as good as the other two? Find out next week. Same bat day. Same bat website. should rise again to cast a shadow on the heart of the city. Call. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing Batman movie retrospective series. Well, that was very brief. Just like all the men in my life. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Fortune smiles. Another day of wine and roses. In your case, beer and pizza. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Batman movie. My business, repeat customers. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives where you can find reviews of other comic-based movies, such as Green Lantern, The Avengers, X-Men, Howard the Duck, and many more. If you gotta go, go with a smile. <laughs> You can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many others. Now that's impressive! You can set your bat phone to subscribe and get every new Now Playing Podcast. RSS subscription details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. People are starting to notice... While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. (laughs) The link to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Oh, you made it. I'm so thrilled. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what are we waiting for? Let's consummate our fiendish union. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't get capes and cowls, yet you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much more. Alfred, let's go shop. Yes. Now Playing's Batman Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. They scream and they cry. Now playing credit narration by Brock. I hate when people talk during the movie. Now playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. 
Batman, and all that DC's infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. This is why Superman works alone. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, all rights reserved. Gotta go! So many people to kill, so little time. The fact that Joker and Batman have always been opposite sides of the same corn, opposite sides of the same corn. It's a movie that hangs on his ability to make us both fear and feel for him. <laughs> I think you can cut that out. Yeah, I, uh, just say that last line again. I'm waiting for... <laughs> this could be a little while. I don't know if Mom's here. Is there a voice saying there's a call, too? Yeah. Yeah, some oh, of those okay. phones announced the phone call. Oh, okay. My mom has one of those. All right, I think we're done, except I forgot my point. What was I saying? Uh, it's a film that uh, relies on him. He carries it. He has yeah, to carry okay. it. Yeah, yeah. To Which feel for him and, yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're leaving a message. They're inviting you to the uh, Morty show? <laughs> yeah, my dreams are here. Yeah.